You've got a passion for the outdoors, a desire to feel the warm sun on your face, the sound of your fly line whipping through the air, the pop of the water as the fish inhales the fly you just found in the floorboard of your truck. You need to feel the cool waters on your feet, the crisp north breeze of a November morning, the sound of a turkey gobble, the December rut, the chills of an elk bugle in September. It's the longing passion to chase your obsession. This is what we share. This is what we preach. Welcome to Honey Hole Hangout. What's up, everybody? Welcome to Honey Hole Hangout. What's up, Honey Hole homies? What's up? Today we have a great guest. We have Chris Johnson. What's up, Chris? Man, another great day in the Hill Country. We all sound yeah. a little congested. Ragweed. You ragweed. Yeah. It's yeah. it's the greatest. And mine's behind me. I feel great right now. Yeah, after fishing on Saturday, I uh It hit you pretty quick. It hit me quick and I it was pretty bad for two days, but I'm coming out of it now. You're good now? Yep. Yeah, okay. Good. I have Zach to my left. I have Gabe to my right. What's up? And Chris is sitting across from me. We're gonna talk to Chris about all kinds of great stuff. Brushy Creek, GRTU, cichlids, living waters. But before we get into all of that, we have a word from our sponsor from the vice to the boat to the bank to those moments you connect to a fish loon outdoors is with you every step of the way with tools designed at the bench and on the water to help make your best day on the water better all right chris i know you, you obviously own a fly shop and i'm fairly certain you carry loon very much so what is your favorite loon product without a doubt absolute favorite loon product and and it, it's weird because not a lot of people pronounce it right and i'm not even sure if i do but it's loon loxa and it's actually an kind of an oil-based floatant that works with cdc so i have a i have a major cdc fetish in my fly tying everybody <laughs> just knows, a little just yeah everybody that knows me at all knows that i have a like severe cdc fetish like there's a lot of duck butt in my <laughs> in my fly tying room <laughs> But uh, Loxa actually, unlike, you know, Aquel and Royal Gel and all the other ones, it actually works with CDC, natural hairs, synthetics, all of it. And one of the things I like about it, even though I normally powder my dry flies, when it's rainy, really damp, you're in the Rockies or, you know, here in the hill country, you need something or you get a fish that just really slimes it, having that oil-based kind of that sort of floating, you just rub that into the feathers of the fur and it just... Right back yeah, up. I always heard go. that really? you're not supposed to use floating on CDC flies. Except for Loxa. Except for that, yeah. Except for, okay. Really? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. You, you, as long as it's an oil based or something like that, a derivative thereof, and, and Loxa, whether it's not its true oil or not, I don't know. Yeah. Um, but it does work really, really well uh, on CDC flies. I use it often. That's a great yeah. tip. Oh, yeah. It also works really good on mice. If you're like, I used it religiously mousing in Alaska. Really? It is unbelievable. Yeah. You, you take that, you got that little mouse with the foam back, just kind of like a Moorish mouse or something. Mm-hmm. You squirt that stuff on the belly of that, just kind of soak it in because it's raining all the time. Right. And so you can't powder a mouse. They're too big anyway. So you rub that on there and it's just back up on top and you're getting rainbows and grayling to crush it again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nice. Are you one who, uh, do you put floating on like the first foot of your tippet as well? Actually, no. Yeah. Uh, and the reason why. I have reasons behind all this. I find no, no, I'm good. That's what I'm asking. Yeah, I'm like, honestly, why no? I've never heard yeah, of that before. I, I, yeah. Oh, I really? Like, that's a Zach hot tip. I've never heard before. <laughs> oh, so, yeah, yeah. so you can you can grease a leader, grease grease your tip to actually pull it up on top of the water. However, it does make it visible. 
So mm. I only fish fluorocarbon tippet, like almost without a doubt. Like I will very rarely. Even on be, your dries? Yes. Really? Because okay. here's the deal. Fluorocarbon is invisible when it's under the water. Uh-huh. And so 4 and 5X, it's not really going to pull a dry fly down. Right. I mean, 6X especially not. But it will sink ever so slightly, breaking through the surface tension. And I've literally had situations on, like, spooky trout tailwaters where I'm watching fish actively eat the bugs. I match the hatch perfectly. I see them come up on the fly, and they refuse it. I'm like, what is wrong? I mean, like, I don't understand. I have the right bug, the right drift. I've got a fish that is actively eating that bug. And I was like, I guess I could switch tippet. And I went to fluorocarbon. Fish ate immediately. See, I used that tip. I heard that on that tip on another podcast because everyone always says, oh, fish nylon with dry flies. With dry flies. And I heard someone yeah. say, just use a nylon leader, but switch your tippet to fluorocarbon. 100%. Just so that last, like, you know, foot section is fluoro and it will, like he said, break the tension and it's harder for the fish to yeah, see. Yeah, I never would have. They, they it's a, it's it. a great tip. Well, and the other thing is just the economy of it. A lot of people don't want to buy fluorocarbon leaders. They're expensive. Yeah. Yeah. There, there's a time and a place for them. I right. mean, every, everybody should have at least a few in their arsenal and we could go into all the technicalities of why that would be the case. But, you know, fluorocarbon tippet, you can carry a myriad of sizes, apply it however you want, and it just is that ace in the hole. You got that last 18 inches that the fish is really going to see anyway. Right. You know, making sure that you're using the best possible material to connect to, you know, the fish itself, you know, that's the thing that really matters. That $14 is really, you're going to be using it twice as long because you're only using uh, a small section. Oh, yeah. Infinitely longer. Yeah, Yeah. because you're, yeah, just a little spool of it, right? I mean, I've just been using fluorocarbon. That's a good, I'm going to take that tip because I I never really thought about that. Because I always would have just assumed it would have sunk it every single time. It gets your flies down faster on a subsurface situation. Um, you know, it's, it is stiffer than nylon. So if it's windy, it turns your flies over better. It's more abrasion resistant. I mean, fluorocarbon's got so much going for it. Nylon's inexpensive, has a little bit of stretch and it's a little bit easier to not. Right. But I mean, like the, the pros just so far outweigh the cons for fluorocarbon. And you know what? I, I use my dropper. I usually always do fluoro anyways, and it doesn't sink a fly. So I guess, you know, having 12, 18 inches in front of the fly wouldn't really do much either. Right. Okay. There you go. We're not even five minutes into this one. We're already learning some stuff. We're throwing out some Woo. good stuff. <laughs> I like it. Uh, do you drop off the bend or do you uh, go through the, the eye? Depends. Uh, if it's normally, I'll go off the bend. If it's a dry dropper, it's off the bend. Okay. Uh, if I'm doing any sort of like a check nymphing situation, a lot of times I'll go through the eye or something like that. Just Be- you get the full weight of that bottom fly. Yes and no. Sometimes just because of the casting style. Sometimes okay. if you're on a full like wide gate barbless hook, sometimes they'll slide off, mm, and yeah. you don't want to lose flies while casting or while <laughs> fighting fish. That's very very counterproductive. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Chris. So we're gonna we got a lot to talk to you about. Let's start with let's start with your backstory and kind of how Living Water started. So when did you start fly fishing? I started fly fishing. Uh, oddly enough, I actually started tying flies before I ever started fly fishing, which. Okay. Totally backwards. I don't think I've ever done anything really normally in this sport <laughs> ever. <laughs> like I got it all backwards. But I started tying flies at probably 11 years of age. Well, so why the interest in tying if you weren't fly fishing? Yeah, of course. Um, basically, I loved all things fishing. I was head over heels like in love with the sport just in general. And, uh, and believe it or not, they didn't have YouTube back then. Um, and so, which I'm very thankful for because I got a much better education because of it. I actually read books. Yeah. Reading is hard folks. <laughs> yes. I mean, it's like, <laughs> so, but I mean, the thing that was great is I mean, I, I went to the round rock library cause I grew up in round rock and 
I've, I mean, if you go, they still have like the, you know, the stamp cards in there where they had like, you know, where they had the old card catalogs. You checked it out, yeah. and they stamp it on there with a return date. The last stamps in there are mine because they switched over to the automated system. <laughs> with all the, I'm like, the last ones in there are actually mine. I'm like, that's kind of crazy. It was that long ago, but uh, nonetheless, you know, read a bunch of books, got my hands on everything I could, and I was like, man, I, I really should try to fly fish. Uh, this looks like a lot of fun, and they had one VHS tape at the Round Rock Library about fly fishing. Nice. And I, I, I don't even remember the title of it now, which is terrible because I, I, I actually tried to go back and look for it. I cannot find it. Um, but the host was Homer Circle, if any of y'all remember him. Um, I'm getting a lot of uh-uh. No, nope, nope. Nobody, golly. Am, am I the oldest person in this room? Is it, or am I just the old soul? Is that what, what? How, how old are you? I just turned 36 on Friday. 36. No, nope. I'm older. Oh, <laughs> you're, you're, you're just I'm sheltered. 39, yeah. You're just sheltered. Yeah, I just, just yeah. sheltered. Okay. Yeah. yeah. But, so Homer Circle, actually, it, it, those of you that – I used to tournament bass fish, too, so a lot of people don't know that about me. I have a dark past. Um, but the thing that – I guess what's kind of funny is if you ever had Bassmaster Magazine, you had Uncle Homer's Corner. You could actually, Homer Circle actually would write tips and tricks and all that sort of stuff in the magazine. Well, he was the one that hosted this fly fishing film, and I watched it, and it had, you know, gosh, it had Joan Wolf on there, had Lefty Cray on okay, there, Chico awesome. Fernandez, had a lot of people, and that's, there you go, that's Homer Circle right there. Got a picture of him. There, everybody meet Homer Circle. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> he, he has since left us. But the, uh, the thing that was really crazy is, you know, I saw it, and I was like, that just looks like so much fun i really I, I could do that well i think it was I, so my dad and my mom got me a fly tying kit for my 11th birthday or something like that and there's actually still a home video and we still have it and i unwrap the present i see this fly tying kit and i'm kind of bewildered by it and my dad goes, you think you can do that, son? I was like, no, that looks hard. <laughs> and now, like, it, it's funny, flash forward to current day, I'm, I'm now a signature tire for Uncle Feather Merchant. So, I mean, it's just crazy. Never never negate some of the things that you may give your children when they're young may actually turn into a profession. So be very careful. You know, <laughs> make, make sure you give them, like, fly tying kits yeah. <laughs> or, like, a lawnmower. Or, you know, something, you know? <laughs> do, do something productive. Way to make some money. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> a way to do something, yeah. If you give them Legos, it's like, this is cool and all, but I don't think you're going to do anything professionally. So this picture we're looking at homer he's holding a huge bass normal in in a water camo pants and shirt but not like the water digital camo you see here it's literally like designed waves and then a bright red hat uh yeah solid picture classic classic no, he, he, he is classic. There's just no two ways yeah. about it. And he, the, the video was produced. You want to talk about sponsors? The video was produced by Panasonic. Jeez. Wow. And, and there was a scene at the end of the movie where he puts on a Walkman and, like, plugs it, like, puts on his <laughs> headphones. There's another one where he, like, cranks up this boom box that's, like, literally half the size of my car. And I'm just like, <laughs> oh, my goodness, it's just a different time. But it was, it was really interesting because, I mean, you had people there that, I mean, they were pulling flats boats that, you know, we would laugh at the boats they were in. And, you know, you were watching people, you know, trying to catch, you know, fish on like size 20 dry flies. And that was so minuscule then. And now you're looking at like, you know, if you go to the San Juan, it's 26, 28, yeah, 28. mid, you know, yeah. you, you don't even sneeze at that. And so it, it's something that it's funny how the sport has evolved. But what was, I think, the neatest thing about it, and, and, and it just hit me one day. It was really kind of crazy. I mean, I've, I've been in the industry a while and I've met a lot of the people that were in that video. Really? Yeah. I mean, like, I got to meet Lefty before he passed and uh, have some funny stories about that. And then, you know, I, I got to uh, meet Chico Fernandez and, 
you know, I, I've met, you know, several people in the video, and I was just like, there's no sport that you're going to go watch a video mm-hmm. on that you're literally going to meet those people. Right. You know, I mean, I would ne- you're not going to watch one on the NFL or the NBA or anything where you get to sit in a room with those people and actually have a conversation mm-hmm. right. where, where they're actually interested in hearing what you're doing. You know, they're, they're the expert. But, I mean, like, they're, that's the thing about fly fishing is the, 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 the separation gap between just getting in it and literally you are the who's who of the sport, it is almost non-existent. Like, they may be able to cast circles around you, and they really know their stuff, and they've traveled the world or whatever, but they're still approachable. And, yeah. and I mean, that's, that's one of the things I love about this sport is I, I, had a, <laughs> I had somebody call me the other day, and I mean, I, I, I do a lot of, you know, events across the state, and I've spoken in other states as well, and I had somebody call me, or call the fly shop, and I answered, and they're like, Chris Johnson? The Chris Johnson and I'm like, leave this le- the business out of it. I said I'm just I just work the shop, man. I'm like I may own it, but I'm like don't it, it, I'm not that. I'm like it's just that that's not me. I'm like I, so you're saying we have the Chris Johnson. The, Chris Johnson. If you uh, ever look up how many Chris Johnsons there are in the world, there's probably only second to John Smith. So I mean, it's like there's nothing nothing all that original about it. But it's it, it's funny because you know it, it, who cares that you're a celebrity in fly fishing, honestly. You know, and, 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 and I'm not one, but it's just one of those things of like, who, who would care if you were? Because, you know, it, it's just fly fishing. Mm-hmm. You know, we, it's for us, it's so much of like our microcosm of life where it's like, oh, man, we, you know, want to hang on every word that some of these people say and, you know, really appreciate what they've done to the sport or whatever. And now it's just like, where have you traveled and what cool things have you done? Not what you've actually contributed to the sport. But anyway, we'll leave that alone. But the, uh, <laughs> it's like, hey, cool. How much money did you spend going there? Yeah, I don't, right. I don't, I don't yeah. have that much. So it's like, <laughs> yeah. but, uh, you know, it, used to, it was like, you know, when you're looking at like Lee Wolf used to go to shows and tie, you know, size 26 parachute atoms in his hand, you know, they, they would tie flies by hand. And it's just like, we don't do that stuff anymore. Like the, the, the some of the artistry and some of that kind of that pioneer stuff, even, even within Hollywood, you know, it's like used to, you had to be able to sing, dance, act, yeah. do all that stuff. Now it's like, you know, you kind of have to sort of be pseudo good looking and sound good on camera. You know, yeah. it, it, it's just, it's a different day. It's, I mean, and there's a ton of talent and I'm not trying to demean that, but it's just one of those things of like, Used to, you had to be kind of cross-trained in, in a lot of arts. And that's the thing with fly fishing, is I feel like used to, the people that really were the greats and that were the pioneers of the sport, they did not have the technology we have. They didn't. They don't have the, the rods, the reels, any of that. And they were doing stuff that had never been done. Mm-hmm. I mean, and so with that, you know, for me to watch a video with these people on it and get to meet them, you know, not too many years later, there's not many sports like that. And, and I mean, even events like Trout Fest and some of the other ones throughout the state and even some of the fly clubs and shops and stuff like that will bring these people down where you can meet them and actually, you know, meet Dave Whitlock, you know, meet, you know, back when he was alive, Lefty Cray and stuff like that. That's stuff that, you know, don't take that for granted. Those are, that's not, some of that stuff's not easy to pull off. If you get yeah. a chance to yeah. be within driving distance of somebody yeah. like that, the only regret you'll have is that you didn't go. Yeah, it's yeah. never that you met the person. Yeah, yeah. Right. so I've I've never had a bad experience where I was like, oh man, that just didn't really go how I thought it was. Like th- yeah. they're really they really were forerunners and pioneers. Do you think as as they as those group of people become less and less in the industry that we're gonna get anything like that again? An- another Ooh. Lefty Cray, another Dave Whitlock. I mean, it just especially with like social media and stuff. We've had these conversations before with the social media side. I I don't know if that's that's the case anymore. Or are we creating that, <clears throat> for lack of a better word, like that celebrity fly fisherman where it is, it's not going to be the, you just sit there and have a conversation with them. It is going to be more of like a, oh, a meet and greet. They sign an autograph and you're done. You know what I mean? Because I right. feel like that's already with the YouTube, like 
bass fishermen that's already kind of happening a little bit, and it seems like it might start seeping into the fly fishing community as well. This is a really interesting conversation um, because I've thought about that a lot because our, our on our landscape of we'll get back to all my history and stuff. Yeah, later. no, that's this fine. Is, this is going to derail into a whole other rabbit hole. <laughs> I, I think honestly, it's a great question because I mean, when you meet like I mean, when I met Dave Whitlock the first time, he was exactly what I hoped he'd be. You know, southern gentleman, knew his stuff, ties a mean hair bug, and like literally. There's no bass on this planet that's not scared of Dave. Still, <laughs> so I mean that's the that's the thing about like and I mean he'll even like compliment your wife and stuff. You know, like he was uh, signing a print for us, and I was like, Dave, this is my wife Emily, and his wife's name's obviously Emily as well. And he goes, I guess they just don't make an ugly Emily. <laughs> <He's> like <laughs> he goes, I yeah. guess they're just all good looking. And I was like, Yeah, yeah, you <laughs> suck up. She's gonna buy that print now. <laughs> and so <laughs> it's like, but I mean, it, it, and he's just the sweetest person ever. And I mean, like. That's exactly what you hope from people that have been, you know, not your idols, so to speak, but the people that you learn from and read their books and, you know, read their articles and magazines and such. But now we're getting more of this kind of YouTube kind of persona. We are getting more of this travel intensive, like I've been here, I've done this, I've gone there, I made a film about it and I had sponsors to do it. And, and I'm not saying there's not a place for that. So, I mean, please, I don't want anybody to misread me on this, but you're not going to have relationship with those people and those and, and I'm I'm in some respects guilty of the same thing where you know we can host trips we can have a fly shop but how much material I mean I've put a lot out there on the internet as far as like doing digital events and even a ton in storage is where we don't charge anything for classes like y'all come but I've not put anything out in print you know I don't have something to hand a kid and say hey read this and come fish the hill country you know and, I mean and that's on me and so you're you're seeing that used to People, when they had something to say, they wanted they wanted to say it. They wanted everybody to know it because they felt like it would help. And now we're finding people that really don't have anything to say but feel they, like they need to say something. <laughs> and so YouTube, I make fun of it. Like YouTube as a grand scale, I make fun of them all the time. I, our intro to fly casting classes at the shop, I line everybody up. I said, all right, who's ever watched a YouTube casting video? And a bunch of hands go up. I'm like, raise them high. <laughs> Higher. <laughs> like with pride. Okay, all of you look around. See those hands? And it's most everybody. I was like, I want you to repeat after me. I will never <laughs> I will watch a YouTube casting video again. And I'm like, look, and the quote that I give is I'm like, look, there's some good ones out there, but you don't know what you don't know. Yeah. 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 So the guy that gets up there and goes, I'm going to show you how to be a great flycaster. Stop at 10 o'clock, stop at 2 o'clock. Great, you're really doing good. Subscribe, like, ring the bell, do whatever <laughs> the garbage is, and then, hey, watch me next time. That's, that's YouTube casting. That's it. Yeah. There's no you know, five essentials of fly casting, principles of what makes it work. Why do we put a stop there? How do we accelerate? How do we do any of this? How does the rod tip need to move in order to make a tight loop? None of that's discussed. And if it is, sometimes it's discussed and very poorly demonstrated. You don't typically get both. And there's some out there that are really good. And we give them some sources, even our beginners, and just say, look, go here, go here, go here. This is where you need to go to find the good ones. But And we just say, look, you can find a biscuit in a dumpster, but a dumpster is not a good place to go looking for a biscuit. That is YouTube casting. <laughs> like, yeah. It's like that, that is 100%. It. Fly tying, there's a lot more grace on the YouTube side than casting. So casting, it's like fly tying, there's creative license. Casting is like physically governed by, well, by, by principles. What you're saying is, is definitely thought-provoking, Chris, because we're in a situation where like we don't have a fly shop. We are a media brand, sure, basically. People listen to us. We don't get to see them face-to-face. They get to hear what we have to say. 
And then when you're our guest, they get to hear what you have to say or our other guests have to say. So that's interesting. We have a YouTube channel. It's interesting and thought-provoking to say uh, – I don't know where I'm trying to go with this. but No, but but again, to that is is we know that they're trying to hit a metric within the YouTube algorithm that it's only going to be XYZ long. They want you to come again and look at other videos. It, it's it's just it, it's it's just different. It is, and, and I mean, and, and and I think the thing, and that's part of the reason that the fly shop is structured the way it is, is we put an emphasis on community, mm-hmm. and and that's the part where you know, and we'll probably get to this later in the podcast, but that's something that like we want people to come in and shake hands, hug necks, say hi's, have a donut, have coffee. Sorry, I didn't bring donuts, guys. That's, that was that was that was <laughs> yeah. over two. We were right? over two. Yeah, I was about to say sorry. That, that was a, that was a I, fast oversight. I, I didn't know. I always thought Chris Johnson came with just. Round I just come with donuts. Yeah, it's, just, I just, oh, it's like a lifetime sponsorship. Yeah, that's I, I how it works. Yeah. It's like a dadgum Pez dispenser. Yeah, you just exactly. go around and all the donuts. Come out. <laughs> that he had a, a plug-in, like one of those plug-in uh, uh, pizza warmers in the back of his car. Mm, there it is. Yeah, yeah. grabs right what, there. What kind of discount do they give you? They don't. I pay full price for that. you don't have a deal worked out with them. No, at this point no there, there is no deal i mean i, I went I, the other day in fact i brought him to the casting uh, the ci roundup uh, last weekend i was, that was the earliest i'd ever been in the round art donuts line i was there at 4 45 in the morning oh man and i was not the first car in line it's unbelievable what time do they, do they open 4 30 is it re- oh 4 30 in the morning it's unbelievable man i mean that, that it, it, i have never seen road rage like what you will see at round art donuts <laughs> when somebody tries to cut in line it is <laughs> Like it's amazing somebody has not like gotten shot. <laughs> People love their donuts. I mean, it, it, that's yeah. it's a saving grace because like. You can go up to the – I can be on the phone at the fly shop and just watch out the window. There's people, like, driving through the roundabout backwards. There's people trying to cut in line. There's oh, horns. Wait, yes. All the pedestrian traffic. I'm like, this is very entertaining. <laughs> <laughs> like, I might be on hold for, like, the IRS or something. And I'm still just having a great time. So. <laughs> oh, man. But you, you, you are right. I mean, this, this – culture of fly fishing that's coming now it's accessible anybody can get a hold of it there's a lot of information out there i can't say that any of it's like or that all of it's really good information and that's part of the thing of i i'm i'm starting to find myself fiercely fixating on what brought us here yeah and and, and not what's i mean because where we're headed versus i i mean i spoke this is a perfect example i spoke with a fly fishing club uh uh I don't remember if it was president or VP or somebody on the board of a, of a major fly fishing club in Texas. And very, very high membership count. I'm not going to disclose numbers because I don't want anybody to know who it is. But, you know, they have multiple board positions open that nobody wants to fill. Yeah, And I'm like, we've got, you know, a ton of people that are eligible, that are able. You know, look at GRTU. You've got almost a 6,000-member chapter. I think it's like 5,800 people. You know, getting volunteers to do anything is like pulling teeth. Yeah. Because we're we'd rather just click on a button, see what we need to see. Listen to the honey hole podcast. Whatever you gotta do. <laughs> that, and, but the thing is the beauty of a podcast is you can be driving somewhere, doing whatever, you're you're getting fed information where used to you wouldn't have. There, yeah. That's not on the radio. And so it's a, you can kind of choose when you want to take yeah. in that info. Right. Yeah. right. You know, used to it's like I guess you just kept the fly fishing magazine next to the commode. I don't know how. I mean, like, <laughs> yeah. you know, I guess that's all you were able to do. But, yeah. you know, that's the part that, I mean, for, for this, I mean, you're looking at now information is so abundant, but I find that so much of it is either very opinionated, very inaccurate, or pays no homage to what got us here and is, is trying to put us in a totally different direction that as I look at it from, and, and I, 
I'm not that old, but as I start looking at this, I'm like, that's not going to get us 50 years from now. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're looking at, if you go 50 years in reverse at what fly fishing was, and then you look at where we are now and everything that has changed, there's some things that have very much remained the same. And I'm like, how do we capitalize on those things? Because those are great things. That's that community, that mentorship, that education, the conservation, right. the things that really were done that made lasting impacts. I mean, even, you know, within TU and stuff like that, um, you know, the Federation of Fly Fishers that is now Fly Fishers International, a lot of things that have changed, but there's so much that has been developed. And I, I just feel like the mediums are more just abundant than what they used to be. Used to, it was print print yeah, <laughs> that was yeah that yeah. was kind of i mean that or you went to a show and talked to that person you know they give a presentation but i mean if you wanted to digest anything somebody was putting out it was in print and i have a very extensive library of fly fishing books that i and i'll never trade them for the world and i mean like when if somebody passes away and we like one of their kids or their relatives comes up and say hey look they had all this stuff here it is can y'all find goods homes for it i'm like did he have any books yeah. <laughs> here <laughs> like, did he or she have any books I want to know if they did it. And sure enough, a lot of them do. I'm like, that one for me, one for half price books, yeah. one for me. I was like, yeah. no, and we, and we wind up giving like a lot of them to the kids. Cause yeah. I'm like, you need to read this. Yeah. This is stuff that you'll never find on YouTube. This is stuff that's not, it's not out there. Yeah. It's just not out there because it's been forgotten. I've, I have like, fly recipes for stuff that if I were to quote the flies, you'd be like, oh, what? Yeah. I'm like, and, they're, and they'll never show up on the internet again. Nobody knows who they are or, or what that and fly And even is. in those books, it's just the recipe. It's not even a picture of it. Right. right. Yeah. You, you'll have like maybe one color plate on the back of the book and, yeah. and that's it. But I mean, that's the part where used to, you had to figure that out. Mm-hmm. And, and it's so interesting to see that like now we want everything and digestible bites and very easy, you know, and that's something that I make fun of this and I don't, and I'm not trying to demean anybody, but this is the part where I go, I fish a lot. And so when I'm supposed to, it's my job, but like I'll go fishing across the street from the fly shop at Brushy Creek. I go all the time. I catch massive cichlids, really big bass, and but I'm there a lot. And I'm there more days than the average angler is there. I also choose my days. I'm like, I should go today, not Thursday. You know, yeah, whatever. Right. I can I can do that. I mean, I, I work right across the street. So, but then I get comments on Instagram or Facebook, and it's always like, where did you catch that fish? And I'm like, across the street. I'll say in downtown Round Rock. I'm like, I just, Brushy Creek is 69 miles long. I just eliminated it down to like literally a mile and a half. Go figure it out. Right. You know, and, and I'm not trying, and it's not to be mean. I'm just yeah. like, I want people to like go explore. Well, and even at that point, you're already taking away so much of the work anyways. Literally right. just giving yeah. them like a general area. 80 plus percent of the water has now been eliminated. Right. I'm yeah. like, yeah. you know, it's, I mean, it's just, literally, I, I think the downtown parks, I think it's a mile of water. Yeah. I mean, so, you know, it's, it's 69 per, like but 69 going, miles and now it's like down to one. It's not that hard. No, you're right. But that's going back to the initial stuff with the YouTube stuff. Everyone wants that, that quick, that quick buy and the quick, you know, well, it's, it's, it's the instant it's gratification, in, instant gratification. Yeah. And, and that's why those videos are so short and like, okay, I watched it 10 minutes. We're, let's, we'll go. 10 minutes is a long time. Now. No, well, now, it, now it's the <laughs> TikTok six, yeah, second. Yeah, yeah. Now it says 60 seconds, yeah. you know, like really, if I don't, if I can't get, you know, the endorphin, release in the 60 seconds i don't want it yeah you know? right and oh and we've had people say comment that our podcast our, our podcast is normally an hour and a half most of the time <laughs> right. people say oh that's a long podcast right right 
And I'm like, we barely even scratch the surface. Some of the people we've yeah. had on, we could have sat here for four hours right. and it's been all great content. Right. Like, I have a feeling, Chris, we're going to have a hard time unplugging <laughs> your microphone. Yeah. You just tell me to yeah. shut up yeah. and I'll leave. So <laughs> good. But going going back to again to like you know again these these this dying breed of of guys. That we, I had, when I started 15 years ago, I was doing that. I was going. Wife and I were were dating and just graduated college, and we were going to half price books. That was a that was a date night, and. And yeah, you're right. I have some cool stuff that now I'm like, I, I can't let this go because that's it. And and you're not you're not going to find another print of it. You're not going to find nope. the information in it. And and I've got those books of these old style flies that it's just a, a write up of of it's this this and that. This is kind of how you're supposed to fish it, but there's no there's no visual aid right. on what what are the link sizes? Where how big were those shanks on those on those hooks? Um, it's cool. It just, yeah. It's just, it. You just, it's at that point where you. It's not. I don't think it'll ever be back. It, it's, it's tough to be back. The thing that everybody wants is they want all the benefit with none of the history. Yeah. yeah. And and that thing is is like I can give you. I mean, everybody in this room, I can teach you how to do what I do. I can tell you where to go do it. I can give you the flies. I can give you the tackle. I can get you the rod. I can literally draw an X on the map. And we do that for so many people. If people are going to Colorado, I'm like, look, park here, do this, do that. And, and they're like, man, I had a great trip. I'm like, good, it all went as it should. Mm -hmm. But like, I'm not the one holding the rod. At the end of the day, it's my history with that creek, my history with those fish, my history with that region or whatever that catches those fish. Yeah. And I mean, yeah, there's weather and, you know, I mean, as much as we... <laughs> We don't really like the word luck, but there's just some stuff that comes down that you're just like, well, that was fortuitous. <laughs> it's like, you know, how did that happen? But, you know, right place, right time is, you know, I, I think it's probably more than three quarters of it. I mean, and that's the part is that everybody wants the the hero shot, but nobody ever sat out there in the rain. Mm -hmm. You know, nobody yeah. went when it was cold. Nobody was like, hey, where does that fish go when it's January and I don't see it anymore? Nobody asks those questions. Right. They just want to go fish what flies they're told, and nobody explores anymore. And, and I feel like there's a, and it might be my dad's quote, but he's like, if you're not exploring, you're dying. And I'm like, wow, that's, that, that honestly is fairly true, because otherwise we're just happy with where we've been, and we just want to go recreate an experience over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, that's one of the things with the Guadalupe River. It's like, you know, everybody's like, well, how do I catch a trout on the Guadalupe River? I'm like, the same way you did three years ago and four years ago and five years ago. <laughs> I'm like, it, they're, they're going to sit in the same places, except for when the river floods, and it changes a little bit. Probably going to eat mostly the same flies. Pretty much going to do the same thing. And you're going to get a new batch of fish each year. Now, how to fish for holdovers on the Guadalupe River? We could talk about a totally different, you know, that, that topic matter is very diverse, very crazy, I've seen fish do stuff. I've seen trout try to eat sunfish off your lines, like bass yeah. do in ponds and stuff like that yeah. in lakes. And you're like, whoa, this fish has reverted to some other kind of <laughs> yeah. mode of operation. <laughs> but that's the thing is, like, you have to have that history with this sport, and, and there's no substitute for doing it. Mm -hmm. There just isn't. Chris, let's circle back to your background. So you were 11, you got a fly tying kit. So your parents gave you a fly tying kit before they gave you a fly fishing outfit? Yes. I actually wound up getting the fly rod. Um, gosh, it was the following spring. Um, I think it was for a good report card. And it was not a, like, nice fly <laughs> rod. The report card was good. It was very good. But it, like, 
we were also on a budget. So <laughs> I do respect that. Everybody's like, oh, fly fishing's so expensive. I'm like, you have no idea. I'm like, try owning a fly shop. <laughs> but it, it honestly, the the first one I got, I, I just got like a little Martin starter kit. It wasn't anything fancy. Literally got, I mean, here's here's how inept and how terrible it was. I, I have total sympathy for beginners. You know the little like hook keeper ring on your fly rod? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I threaded the line through that. I was like, well, it's an eyelid, I guess. Yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> yeah. It's went through there. And so I mean, like, I, I was that inept. So yeah. I mean, people are like, oh, it's Chris Johnson. I'm like, no, Chris Johnson was really bad at this. So <laughs> I was like, you have to understand. I, I mean, I was no gift to fly fishing. <laughs> no, like you said, but that was also part of the learning process was doing that kind of stuff. You know, there was no YouTube. Right. It there was, was there was like, no here's yeah. how to string a fly rod in yeah. any of the books that I had. So yeah. and then you're like, I don't think this goes through there. And you just <laughs> you kind of start having that thought of like this just doesn't work as well as if I don't put it through there. <laughs> so, I mean, just, you know, it, it, you, we can laugh at it now, but I mean, I have people that come in the fly shop to do that. I'm yeah, like, yeah. been there, done that. I mean, it's just like, it, it's okay. I mean, it, we just teach them how to do it. It's not, it's not like, wow, you're an idiot. It's not that I'm like, if they are, then so was I. I'm like, you know, it's just one of those things. I, I People have to start somewhere. Yeah. You know, yeah. you've got, you've got to understand that like on guide trips, especially some of these people never touched a rod. And so for me, that was the, the way I started. I had no mentor. I'm first generation flying lure in my family. Never had anybody to teach me how. It was all books, all magazines, and doing it. And so I took the fly rod out for the first time. I caught several bass on my first trip. Felt pretty dumb. On your own flies? No, no. I, I, I think I tied a few flies. They did not hold up well. They were, they were no, they, they, they were bad. Let's just go that way. <laughs> the first one was good because my dad wanted me to make sure that it was perfect. It's it's really funny. My daughter Lydia's uh, she'll turn six in December. She's five right now, and uh, sh- her first fly tying night at the store was last week. Loved it. Comes down, shows me her woolly bugger, and I'm like, "Holy smoke, child!" I'm like, "That's like as good as I do." I'm like, "That's a really good woolly bugger," and she she's funny. Like she'll sit down and tie with me for two hours straight, no help necessary. She'll just sit down and start creating her own stuff, and I'm like. Have at it. Let them do it. I don't. It doesn't have to look perfect. Let them mm-hmm. be creative. Let them have fun. So for me, that was kind of the trial and error of fly tying and fly fishing. Is like I have no idea what I'm doing, but I'm having a very good time doing it. Yeah. And so, it, it, you know, I caught a fish, then I caught more fish, then I wanted to catch a lot of fish. Then you want to, and there's that the progression in fly fishing where you just want to catch a fish, then you want to catch a lot of fish, then you want to catch a big fish, and then you want to catch a lot of big fish. Yeah. And then you want to catch a special fish, and so. And that special fish never leaves you. That that fish is going to be something that you'll chase it to the ends of the earth. I mean, I, I caught special fish today. I mean, down here in San Antonio. I mean, it's, it was awesome. Come down here for the podcast. I'm like, if I am that close to a certain very, very good cichlid fishery, I should probably fish it. So I yeah. yeah. met, met Mr. Odom Wu down there. We, uh, we tore it up, man. It was awesome. We had a great day. But, I mean, it, it's funny that, like, that's where you progress. So I went from there... And I started my senior year of high school. Um, Sportsman's Warehouse opened in Round Rock, Texas. So there's actually, there were two of them in San Antonio. Yeah. There was one of uh, the, the uh, Legacy Store, uh, which was off 1604, and uh, I think it was Westover. Mm-hmm. Um, off of like, is that, what is it? Not Burleson over there. Is it Burleson? Uh, but yeah, it's Westover is fine. Yes, yeah. by SeaWorld, 1604, That's right. Yeah, whatever that was yeah. over there. But I, I forget what that was. But anyway, yeah, the Westover store was over there. And there was another one up in Louisville. So there were four in Texas. And so that was the first shop that had ever opened in Round Rock that had any semblance of fly fishing assortment. It actually had fly tying materials. 
So I was freaking out. So I went in there and applied for a job immediately. I was like, mm-hmm. hey, I'm senior in high school. I've been mowing yards. I would much prefer AC and fishing stuff. You know, let's... I could go get, you know, chased off by yellow jackets, weed eating under the eaves, or I <laughs> yeah. could talk to people about fishing and make a paycheck. I'm like, option two sounded yep. pretty good. But wound up, uh, and here's another thing that I think is really funny. I didn't get hired for the fishing department. They were full. But I said, whatever job you can put me in here, I just want to be in the door. I'm like, you'll find out that that's where you want me sooner or later. Yeah. And so they put me as a cashier. And, and a lot of people, if they don't get exactly what they want right when they get there, they'll go look for a job somewhere else. There's, there's this immediate gratification thing. And I, I mean, you know, you always hear your parents talk about how it was back then. You know, for me, it's just like, I was so passionate about it. Whatever I had to do to be in the room, I just wanted to be in the room. Yeah. And what did I do every lunch break and every 10 minute break they gave us? I was in the fishing department talking to the staff. We got to become good friends. We fished together. I think I was a cashier for three months. Mm-hmm. And, 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 but the thing was, I had several managers, a couple of really good managers, but you know, work work changes, you know, people get transferred to other stores and stuff like that. But I literally had managers that I knew about more about the in-store systems than they did because I worked as a cashier on the front end. Yep. And so that cross-training is invaluable. It, it really is. And so that that was the beginning of my foot in the door with the industry was through kind of big box retail. And they had flies. They had fly tying materials. I met a lot of people that I still know um, that are customers of mine even to this day knew me from the warehouse. I started guiding when I was 19, um, back in 2006. So I started guiding in 06. And the only reason I started guiding is I was at the warehouse showing people where I'd been, went to the Lano. They said, how many fish do you catch? And I tell them, and they're like, you're kidding. I'm like, no, I'm dead serious. I'm like, here's some pictures. And they're like, and you're saying you caught that many fish. They're like, I went last weekend and I caught nothing. It's like, I just had this thought. I was like, I could probably take people to do this. This is not all that hard. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> I'm like yeah, I mean, it, it is if you don't know what you're doing, I guess. But I'm like, how hard is it to put a yellow grasshopper on and an olive woolly bugger and catch a bunch of sunfish on the Lano? That was back in the heyday on the Lano, like where it fished lights out. Like the Lano has not been the same since the drought. but And then the flood after that. But my first guide trip on the Lano, the guy caught 65 fish in a day. <laughs> and I was just like, this is not bad. Like, I was on the river all day. It was amazing. We saw great stuff. He had a couple of epic break-offs. He caught a couple of great fish. And he was so happy. And he was one of the guys that he was just, I want to know how to do this. He knew how. And he kept doing it and kept getting better. And that, that sold me on it. I was just like, that man learned. And he still does it and still did it. I was just like, this is so cool. So guiding was that. I then left the warehouse to go into full-time guiding. All the while, I had bought a bass boat and was tournament bass fishing at, at the time as well. So, the, Were you making any money doing that? You never make money at tournament bass mm-hmm. fishing unless you have a lot of sponsors in this really cool jersey that I never had. Yeah. Um, the only sponsor I really had was Sportsman's Warehouse because they would pay my entry fees because they'd sponsor the tournaments. And I was the only guy in the department that had a boat. So I was like, <laughs> so I was like hey, you want to go fish that? I'm like, I'd love to go fish that. They're like, we have two entries. So it was usually me and one other employee. And we're like, go. So, I mean, and, and I did cash a few checks, but it was one of those things of, uh, if you look at the gas spent, the pre-fishing, the, the the money spent on baits before the event and stuff like that, you don't make it. Yeah. You, literally, you, you literally, I think I have one little plaque that that I kept of like, hey, you won this. And I have some great stories and a lot of stuff that happened. And it was really cool and learned a lot. And and, and that's another thing is fly fishing is just, they're, they're like, oh, man, I'd never conventional fish. It's fly only, fly or die. And I'm like, 
have y'all ever even looked at what patterning bass is like? Have you ever looked at commercial bass fishing? They spend billions of dollars on an industry that makes up less than 5% of our market. 90% of flies sold through Umqua Feather Merchants are trout. 90. The other 10% is split between permit, bonefish, tarpon, jungle, yep. bass. It's, it's minuscule. So, I mean, bass fishing, it, it, as far as a economic factor in, in the fly retail world, it's probably like 2%. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's something minuscule, but it's all of what we do here. And so with that, you know, the tournament side was interesting because I had my eyes open to, I, I'd, I'd love to just bass fish in general all, since I was a kid, but it really opened my eyes to the science behind it, patterning fish learning how to anticipate where they were going to be and why they were going to be there, and even when they were going to be there during the day. Like, if you had a wind blowing into a shoreline only for the a.m. before the wind shift, get to that shore, pound it hard, catch your fish, go somewhere else. You know, and you learned how to leave unproductive water to go to productive water, and you also learned never to leave fish to find fish. You learned a lot of stuff in that format that fly fishing doesn't teach. Not really. Yeah. And, and, those, and that's where I don't turn my nose up at those guys. They, they really have hung the moon as far as bass fishing is concerned and most of us in texas that's what we're doing we have one trout river and that is literally a seasonal event and it's still loaded with bass coincidentally (laughs) so i mean there's a lot that can be done there but that was the part from guiding and moving through tournament fishing i went into full-time guiding and uh it flooded like horrifically flooded (laughs) the year that i decided to go full-time and so I wound up going to like Colorado and Honduras and just traveled and did a bunch of mission work. My dad's a full-time missionary, so did a bunch of mission work. So went overseas. Did, we, we lived in Haiti for a while. We did all kinds of stuff. So as a result, I packed a fly rod on a lot of those trips and caught some bonefish and some permit and stuff like that. So it, th- th- those moments weren't exactly suffering for Jesus, but it was one of those things that, uh, you know, in terms of like what we got to do, we saw a lot of country, saw a lot of fish, saw a lot of cool things and met some incredible people. And came back from that, and, and in a weird turn of events, and this is crazy how this all worked out, I was in Honduras, and my sunglasses got stolen. And, and, and there was such a, like a um, drug community over there where we were at. There was, like, I forget the percentage of drugs that get trafficked through this, uh, through this portion of Honduras, that, uh, through Colombia. Like, it's, it's massive. Like, yeah. a very, very large percentage. And they didn't want to, they didn't want to, like, wipe you clean. They didn't want to take fly rods and reels. They just want something they can turn over to pawn shop really, really quick. And, you know, and literally make enough money to just go get a hit and call it good. That, that, and it's a sad way of life, but that in, on that island, that was what you, you get these kind thieves, if you will, where they yeah. just take enough to go pay off their drug bill, and that was it. Yeah. Well, my sunglasses got stolen, and I was like, well, that's a bummer. So I wind up going back, and I, was, I, I dropped into the warehouse, and the store manager said, I'll give you a discount on those if you come back and work for us. I was like, I'm, I'm like, Dude, I'm I'm a part time student in college, or I, I was actually running a full time schedule at college, and still had a. Uh, I was also doing other, uh, you know, side jobs and guiding and stuff like that. It's like I'm busier now than when I left. I'm like, but what are we talking? And he goes, Well, we want you back. I'm like, that that's nice, but to do what? And he goes, We don't have anybody here that knows fly fishing anymore. You are the fly fishing department essentially. There's not really truly a department. But he's like, that's your baby. You can remodel it. You can do whatever you want. You can change our fly selection. You can change the materials. You can rods, reels, whatever. Just make it yours and do it. Like, just put it all on paper, make it happen. And he goes, 
and you'll get a raise from what you were getting last time. I was like, dang, I should have quit earlier. But <laughs> at the time, I was actually making a decent wage for you know remodeling a fly department. So literally got sent home with all the manufacturer catalogs. And I did it on my own time. I literally would work the floor, check inventory, do all that sort of stuff, organize everything so I knew what we had coming back into the store and uh, wound up writing out all the orders, going through vendor catalogs, doing some of that on the floor, doing some of it at home, typed it all up, sent it to the corporate buyers, and it was just crickets, radio silence. So I worked a few more weeks. I was like, this is really weird. We haven't heard anything. And uh, went up to my manager, and he goes, we just heard back. They don't want to do it. I was like, really? You're kidding. That's what I was hired on to yeah. do. Like, this is, I was here to remodel this section, and that, that is the weakness of corporate retail, if anybody's been, done that. It's, yes. <laughs> the buyers, we had great buyers, and, and, and Sportsman's Warehouse had more latitude, and, and may still, I don't know, I haven't kept track of the store since, because uh, we don't have any in Texas, but we had more latitude as a store staff than I've ever seen in a big box store. We could bring in like custom swim baits and, you know, plastics that were, you know, manufactured locally and stuff like that. They would let us do all kinds of stuff that most big box stores, Bass Pro would never let you do. Yeah. Nope. Yeah. They, they would never let you do. 14 years of that. Yeah. Nope. Never let you, they would <laughs> never let you do it ever. But Sportsman's Warehouse would. And the tournament guys kind of gravitated there because we had that stuff. And uh, long and short, the thing that was crazy is that when they said they didn't want to do the fly side, I just had this thought. I was like, well, then somebody should. And I, and I just had that thought. I was like, I, it's all here. It's on paper. And so I, I went to my dad, and I was having a really hard time because I, I found out in college you couldn't major in fishing. I don't know, I, I don't know why, <laughs> yeah. but I found, I found that out the hard way. I was actually, it was the first time in my life I actually had to schedule fishing time. And it was, uh, it was miserable. Hated it. Like, I had to, I was not an athlete either. That's the other thing. I played one year of basketball. Undefeated. I think we district everything. Like, literally, best season you could ever have. Why continue? And I'm sure I was, I, I, I will tell you, I was awful. I was not gifted in that in any way, shape, or form. Uh, I had the height, and that was all. And, and the thing was, like, I hated it. Yeah. I was sitting there in practice. We were actually outside. I was like, this would be the perfect day to be there, 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 there. <laughs> My head was not in it, nor, nor did I see the desire. I mean, that's like golf for me. I'm like, why would you want to chase a little bitty white ball around so much great fishing because water. It, <laughs> <laughs> I was like, yeah. Because it's that. You get to do that and then look in there and say, okay, I'll be back for you later. Yeah, Right. I mean, yeah. I'm just like, fly rods are collapsible. Just put it in the golf bag. But <laughs> the, the whole deal being is I, I, was, I had the thought of somebody should do this. And, I mean, honestly, people are like, well, how, how did you know that this is what you need to do? And, I mean, I know that not everybody agrees with this, and that's fine, but I prayed about it. And I mean, I literally, I went to my dad who, I, you know, I very much respect and, uh, you know, obviously pastor's kid, missionary kid. He's just like, dad, I can't major in fishing. It's not happening. Yeah. <laughs> I, I was, I was in science majors courses cause I was going to go into fisheries biology. That's still, and I'm still nerdy enough to do that. I, I mean, like there's a part of me that still kind of wants to do that. But the, the thing that like, that's where I was headed. Cause I just wanted to be back around fish and outdoors. And I love it. I love the science side of it. It still just intrigues the fire out of me. And I love genetics and love all that sort of stuff. And, and that's where I was headed, but it just wasn't me. Like that, that wasn't really, I wanted to be around people. I wanted to teach. I wanted to educate. I wanted to empower people to go do this and prayed about it. And I, I know people are like, well, how do you know you heard God on? I'm like, cause it's worked so far. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like literally I, I just believe that the Lord wanted me to start a fly shop. I told my dad, I was like, this is not going to sound spiritual, but this is what I believe I heard. And he goes, you'll spend the rest of your life wondering if it would have worked. And he goes, let's do it. And People think that I have some millionaire backer. I don't. Every dollar in the fly shop is mine. 
and and that's one that's also rare um, to not have you know financial backing that is you know if something goes wrong you're still good if something goes wrong we're not good yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. it has to go right and I mean and that's the part that I mean and, and we've had people online call us out like oh it must be nice to have a millionaire backer and I'm it's like <laughs> I that's not me I mean like it's just funny and we've never been a soft goods store we are a pro shop I mean that is what we are we have tying materials fishing stuff waders and boots and that's kind of you know most of it i mean like that's it and a lot of flies uh but the thing is is started it in very meager beginnings uh it, yeah i was ba- i've been to the og you, yeah. you were you're the times. original yeah, yeah. Yep. the one off sam bass the one in the office building oh no 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 oh, prior for that <laughs> oh yeah Ooh. oh yeah we're, there there was og and there's like Oh, oh, gee. Yeah. Yeah. We're like, oh, gee, I don't yeah. ever want to go there again. Yeah. yeah, so the original building, fun fact, most fly shops, if I were ever give anybody, a, a, if somebody said, how should I start a fly shop? First advice would be don't, unless God tells you to. <laughs> Second, don't kill yourself on overhead because you're going to want the fancy building. You're going to want to look like something that belongs on the Madison or up in you know Jackson Hole. You don't have that kind of money when you start a fly shop at all, unless you have a millionaire backer, which I didn't. And so the thing that happened is I got a little bitty, I think it was 588 square feet of a cat shelter. Not kidding. Of a cat shelter? It, it was it, it was a strip center. Did you have to walk through the cat shelter to get to Just, the fly shop? It gets so much worse. <laughs> <laughs> it's so much worse. So th- there was a strip center, and there was like, in the strip center, you had like, there was a church over there. There's a cat hospital. There was a, some sort of gym. That guy wound up like barricading him in there with, barricading himself in there with firearms, and SWAT got called on him like literally a couple weeks after I opened. So I'm like literally a couple weeks open, and there's like SWAT running by my building, and I'm like, they said, stay in your shop and lock the door. I'm like... <laughs> Bad part of town, you know? <laughs> but I mean, it's like Round Rock. Nothing ever happens. So, the the deal with it is, uh, you know, I'm in this little bitty building, and I go in and I look, and the cat hospital had used it for a cat shelter where they were taking in these unwanted cats and just they had all these like cat things built on the wall, and there was like a kitty door in the restroom, and <laughs> the whole place smelled like cat pee, and it was terrible. And I was just like, this will work. <laughs> so, and, I mean, literally, I was like, how much was the rent? Five hundred eighty-eight dollars. A month, wow. yeah, yeah. It was a dollar a square foot, and, and no, then, and no triple net. And what was this? Was oh nine, uh, oh eight, oh eight, okay, oh eight, yeah, five hundred eighty-eight square feet. And so it was either five seventy-seven or five eighty-eight. I don't remember which, but either way, my rent was under six dollars, six hundred dollars a month, and, and that's unheard of. I mean, yeah. and what's funny is if I wanted to do now what I did then, it would not be possible. Just from inflation and just the the cost of business in Round Rock, yeah. you can't start a business like that anymore. It's too expensive. And so, I mean, I literally started with a room full of tying materials, a handful of rods. The back room literally just had a dining room table in it that we could tie flies on. And I sat back there and tied every fly that I sold. Really? Is, so you were sitting there tying your own flies that you're selling? Yep. Then when we first opened the store, I didn't even have a fly account because I tied everything. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So that, that a lot of people don't know that either. Um, that, and that is the only time I will ever do that. I will never do that again. <laughs> so, but that's how it started. And, and so we literally scrubbed and scrubbed and scrubbed that place. There, there was more 409 and bleach in that store by the time it was done. Remodeled it. Nobody would have ever known. On an especially humid day, 
with the ACs a little flaky, <laughs> sometimes you would get, get the whiff, whiff of Kitty's past. But <laughs> <laughs> this was funny. There was a, there was I think it was called a chubby cat door that went into the restroom, and I was like, I can't have a cat door in my bathroom. <laughs> so, but there's it, it was a solid core door. They're expensive, and I'm like, I don't want to replace that. I was like, what can I do? And I went to Home Depot. I was like, I could get a return air register. And literally just cut the hole bigger and shoved what looked like, I mean, basically like one of those. <laughs> and shut the air register off. So everybody's like, it just looked like a vent. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I was yeah. like, got rid of the kitty door. And uh, it, but it was so funny because when we first opened, I hadn't done that yet. And I was like, why is there a cat door in the back? <laughs> <laughs> don't ask. <laughs> don't ask. <laughs> you don't want to know that story. But anyway, that was the OOG. How but long were you in there for? We were in there for, I want to say it was about three, three and a half years. Uh, and wow. then we... we Expanded to the back room, got rid of the dining room table, was it, put Sims there. Was it a rough life for three years, or were you making enough money to survive? It, oh, dude, it was surviving is a pretty good way of putting it. Um, I don't know if I was making enough money, but it worked. I mean, like, honestly, it was rough. Um, and Emily and I got married in 09. That was, actually, that was my next yeah, question, so, when you got married. <laughs> so, fun, fun fact about I've known Emily since she was in middle school and I was in early high school. So, we've known, we had known each other a long time. The, the thing that kind of tipped us off, like we, I, I had so many friends like, why aren't you dating her? You know, she's really pretty, super sweet. Y'all are obviously really good friends. What is wrong with you? I was like, nothing. We're really good friends. And I was like, and if that didn't go well, I would lose my best friend. I was like, not, it's just one of those things. You didn't want to yeah. really want to friend zone it, but you also were kind of like, eh, there could be something there, but I just don't want to go down that road. It's not worth it at <laughs> yeah, the time. Yeah. At the time. The thing that tipped me over the edge and, and her as well. I mean, this is, this, it was same week, same exact week is that <laughs> I went to Colorado after I'd opened the fly shop. I went March of the following year. So I opened up June of 08. I went like March or April of 09 to Colorado and wanted to go up there. My uncle's got a cabin up there. My dad went, so we went up. Emily said she'd watch the shop. And I was like, great, that sounds awesome. You know, she, I was like, that would be perfect. She ran the register, helped people, took phone calls, answered emails. I said, I'll have my cell on me if there's anything that goes wrong. Just call me. It's all going to be great. Well, she's on my laptop answering my emails, answering my phone calls, running my fly shop. And uh, somebody walked in and said, are you his girlfriend? And she goes, no. And she thought, she's like, but come to think of it, why am I not? <laughs> and and kind of have one of those moments. And, and she's like, I really think I love this guy. And then I'm in Colorado and my dad caught me. I got caught red-handed. And that is, I was constantly calling back to the fly shop and texting her and everything. It's just this constant, like, checking and checking it. And my dad's like, you do not care about that shop that much. And I, I was in Colorado trout fishing. There's nothing more than I wanted to do. And uh, on the way, he has dropped me off the airport to fly back. And he goes, uh, he literally, I'm in the, uh, true story, San Luis Valley, Colorado. Love that place. Love the San Luis Valley. Still guide up there today. On the road to the Alamos Alp, uh, airport, my dad looks over and goes, so when are you, when are you and Emily getting married? And, I, and normally I dodge that question. It's like, ah, you're, you know, you're full of it. You know, and you talk about fish. <laughs> you know, I literally just look straight out the window. I was like, I've been thinking about that a lot lately. <laughs> so <laughs> I, we started dating the night I got back. So it was funny. She knew what she was getting into because she'd already run the fly shop. I did find out that she sorted my fly tying materials while I was gone. My personal <laughs> fly tying materials. <laughs> oh. She's like, everything's color coded. I'm like, oh gosh, what have you done? <laughs> yeah. And uh, she's like, but it looks so good. I'm like, it looks great. Where is everything? <laughs> you know, never so find anything. She's like, it's okay. I'll never do it again. And to this day, we're very happily married. It's never happened again. <laughs> 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 
So she knew what she was getting into. But we were there three and a half years, moved into the OG shop that you were in. Yep. How much did rent increase moving into that shop? Uh, we actually, ooh, that's a good question. We went to, so what we did is we actually had the 588 or whatever it was and added another space next door that I think was like 670 or 700 square feet. I think at the end of the time, like end of our uh, tenure at 2111 Sandbass Road, worst suite number ever too. Our address on everything I filled out, 2111 Sandbass Road, suite B2000A. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Because the, 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 the <laughs> 2000 suite had a B and that B went got split. <laughs> yes, like, B two thousand A. It was terrible. It was awful. It was so bad. Everybody's like, I can't find you. I'm like, we can't either. Yeah, <laughs> just keep driving around. I'll start waving. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, um, we were at like thirteen hundred square feet because we had a kind of a built in classroom uh, at the other side of the shop. So we actually were renting a whole other facility. It was just class space, which was awesome because fly tying nights we could just pack it out. It was so good. People just hang out. We had a great time. Emily and I were youth pastoring at the time. We let the kids come over to the shop after hours. We just sit up and just talk and it was a blast. We had a great time, but we left there and went into a thousand square feet. So downsized it and got rid of some of the dead space, but there was a common area. And the thing was, we, it was a thousand square foot of retail we had common area restrooms, common area conference room, a kitchenette, everything like that. So we were kind of actually getting the same or more square footage, but we weren't really having to pay for the other bit. We were right. just paying for what we were using. Mm. I want to say that it jumped about five or $600. Because I think when yeah. we left, we were paying about $1,400. And I want to say that it wound up going up to like $1,800 eventually. So I want to say we were still under $2,000 yeah. uh, at the time. So, I mean, doable. And I mean, still a stretch when you're young and a little fly shop and not really sure if you can make a move into downtown Round Rock, but I always knew I wanted to be downtown. Even when I started the fly shop, I drove around downtown to see if I could rent anything and I couldn't. And so this was a friend that we knew that he had a space available and we were able to do that. And it really located the shop better. We were much closer to 35 and that's where it got its start and all that sort of stuff. So it was really neat. That's how it kind of wound up. And then, uh, Long and short, through literally miraculous events, we are where we are now, which is just catty corner to that. Yeah, because you built your own building for that. Yeah, that's how did how did that work out? Very well. <laughs> no, I mean, I mean, it's a it's be, the shop is beautiful. Yeah, the it, location's great. I mean, you got the pitch, you got the water tower. Like it's pre branded. It's, it's like it's, it's yeah. so cool. It's I mean, like right by Round Rock Donuts. We actually have a sign on the back of the building that says "Fly Fish Round Rock" because if you're in the donut line looking at that building, if it's at Fly Shop, everybody's like, "What?" And if it says, you know, "Fish Round Rock," everybody's like, "Oh, then it's a bait shop." But if you say "Fly Fish Round Rock," there's a way to get past Fly Shop and Fly Fishing and all that sort of stuff, or you know, Fly Sold here or whatever. Yeah. You had to have it where it encompassed all of it. We get a fair number of visitors like, we never knew there was a fly shop here. We're over there getting donuts. I'm like, it worked. <laughs> so, yeah. But um, long and short, the thing about that building is I'd looked at that piece of property for a long time. Uh, and I don't own the building outright. That is one thing that people misconstrue is that I own it outright. Um, we actually still, it, it's, it's a lease. But the thing, that, and so that's probably, a lot of people don't know that. But I have an incredibly good landlord who used to be the, uh, he was the previous mayor of Round Rock. Um, and so just a really, really great guy. And, uh, you know, he's very, very savvy on commercial property and all that sort of stuff. And, uh, I was talking to him about, you know, we had some people who are like, Hey, if you ever want to move, you know, we'd like to invest, you know, you'd like, if you want to remodel something or I was like, okay, should we go down that road? Was really thinking about it. And, uh, he, <laughs> I had looked at this little piece of property, the place where the shop is now. And, uh, 
it was perfect. It was this little narrow strip. Nothing was ever, there was an old barn on it way back in the day, but there was nothing on it. It was just clear. And it was for sale. And I was like, I need to look at that property. Well, it sold almost immediately. I was like, well, guess it wasn't meant to be. And so oddly enough, we were at a prayer meeting at the mayor's office because we were praying over the city and we were at his office and uh, it's like, hey, I, I just, you know, that you know, downtown, obviously you have an office down here and you've been, you're obviously the mayor of the city. Talk to me. Like, what would you stay away from? What would you do? We're really looking at relocating. And he goes, don't do that one. Because we were told him when we were looking, he's like, don't, I, I hate that building. Never, never get that. I was like, okay, fair. That's why I asked. He goes, how much square footage you need? I was like, about this much? And he goes, you know that little piece of land right here? Same spot I was looking at. He'd bought it. And so he's like, I was just going to turn that into parking. He goes, fly shop's way cooler. He's like, uh, let me know how you want it built. And uh, it all, it basically was something we were able to Did do. he build the building? So basically I got to design it and it was built to my specs. Wow. So literally nice. I drew it before it was built. Nice. And so I dimensionally drew the entire building, <coughs> handed it to the contractors and they made it happen. That's really Cra- cool. Yeah. Crazy story. Yeah. Like, that, that's, that, like I said, it's truly miraculous. It's, it's something that like God knew what we needed. He's taking care of the fly shop, and he always has. And, and people are like, well, how do you know if you're successful? I was like, you're just obedient. You just do what you hear. <laughs> like, it, 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 might make, make, it might not make another dollar the rest of time. I've done what I've heard. And that, that's, that's my gauge of success, not how many dollars I make. And that's, I mean, that's such a lame goal. If you want to make money, do not get in this sport. That's the <laughs> lamest yeah. way to do it. I mean, you could probably make more money flipping burgers yes. or, like, working at Bucky's or something. Yeah. But, I mean, honestly, that, that was the thing that was so cool is we were able to do it relationally. And we have a great relationship with our landlord, and he's he's an avid outdoorsman, and he actually has another vested interest in another outdoor store uh, that he part owns. Um, and it's really, really cool. Um, but as far as, like, the dollars that are in the business, those are mine. But as far as the bi- the actual building goes, that is, that's something I don't own outright. So going – so quick – quickly back to Sportsman Warehouse. Why did all the Sportsman's Warehouses close? Do, do you know? I mean, I, you... I know part of it. They obviously filed Chapter Eleven. They they went bankrupt. Okay, um, and, and I have some. I have multiple theories. I have. It's th- because they didn't order the stuff well, that you requested to make them money to keep the shop. No, that that, 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 that that is not it at all. Actually, <laughs> like Cabela's and 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 uh, Bass Pro weren't there yet. And then once they opened, you know, when you walk into the sports center, especially the one off of 151 when that one was open, it was cool. I was here a, then. Okay, well, they had a lot of stuff, but think about like walking into like a Costco. There isn't, there isn't like the allure of going right. in there. Not like the Cabela's and the Bass Pros are, where you can, okay, there's a Bass Pro. I'm gonna go stop I've in. And get some sport, fuzz. I've so, been to a sportsman's warehouse in Montana. They remind and 100%, me one hundred percent. I would rather go to a sportsman's warehouse than I would go to a Bass Pro really? or Cabela's. So they remind me because I used to work at Gander yeah. Mountain, and they remind me a lot of a Gander Mountain. Yeah, Gander, right? Gander had a lot. I would say their their scope was a lot more limited. Yeah. Um, yes, definitely. They, they, so. had, they had a better, like, I would say Gander actually had a pretty de- decent gun side. Yeah. Um, but, like, with sportsmen, they had reloading. They had decent guns. Yeah, they didn't they have had that. archery counter. Their, their fishing side was incredible. But the thing is, you weren't paying for overhead. Yeah. Like, you weren't having to pay for all the mounts and all the fish tanks right. and all this stuff. And you weren't having a boat dealership lo- located in your store and all right. that sort of stuff. Sportsman's was a no-frills big-box store that allowed them to tailor their product offering. So the reason they went out of business, in my opinion, and I thought this was really interesting. Um, I have another. I, I don't. I can't confirm whether it's true or not. But there, I heard there was a little scandal in the upper uppity ups. So I'll leave that alone because that's just word on the street. But they did file Chapter Eleven, and a Canadian company wound up buying them out and infusing a lot of money to keep the stores alive that were left. And they liquidated all the southern stores. They were opening stores so fast they couldn't take care of what they had. 
that's just from outside, really inside looking in, is I was finding out we have holes everywhere, but then this store has 20 of them. We don't have any of them, but you can't buy us anymore. Why? And we couldn't understand that. So when I opened the fly shop, Wachter, Wachter Woodworks, it's a net making company here in Texas. Um, Ed and Kathy Wachter, just sweetest people on the earth, just salt of the earth people, love them to death and love their nets. I opened the fly shop. first. Thing, it was the first fly net I ever bought was a Wachter Woodworks net. I always wanted one, got one. Well, we opened a fly shop. I wanted to carry them. I called them and I said, hey, I know you're all probably really busy. I know that we probably aren't going to get our order in time. They're like, how many nets you need? I told them like, oh yeah, one, two, like next week. I was like, okay, just real quick question. Y'all actually made the nets for Sportsman's Warehouse for their branded nets. Why didn't we, we could never get them. And they're like, yeah, they owe us 20 grand. Yeah. Oh. I was like, oh. oh. So yeah, they were into them for five figures. And I was just like, oh, that would be why. That makes so sense. they weren't paying their bills and they were trying to, they, they, I mean, they weren't paying their bills and they were expanding too fast. And when Bass Pro Shops tried to buy them out, CEO goes, we don't need you. And so turned him down, tried to be his own thing. And I think there were a few other things that did not go well. And that's the reason that the Southern stores closed. There are still Sportsman's Warehouse. I mean, when I yeah. went up to Anchorage, Alaska, there's, you know, still Sportsman's up there. They're great stores. I yeah. still like shopping them. I think they're really good. Yeah. When I went to the one in Montana, I was like, oh, this has so much like tailored to what I do as yeah. opposed to just like the boat shop and all the boat equipment <laughs> and like the clothes, like the Isle of Beef Jerky and yeah. candies. You know, it's like, yeah. you don't, yeah. there wasn't much of that. Yeah. And it, it, it was, it was, Kind of a diehard outdoor store yep. with not a lot of frills, but, but I will also say this, from a standpoint of staff, our fishing department, I've never worked, I, I've never been to a store that had that amount of experience in a single department, in, in a department style store. We had guys that literally would win high level tournaments, win boats every time you turn around, you know, guys that were, you know, carp fishermen, cat fishermen, fly fishermen, you know, guys that had guided in Alaska. We, we, I mean, we had all that in this one little fishing department. There was not a question we could not answer. Yeah. I mean, it, it, and we, if we didn't know the answer personally, we had somebody in the department that knew it. And that was so cool to be able to just say, hey, I don't know that, but this is your man or this is your gal. And we call him over, and it was awesome. I mean, e even like we had one lady that worked in the department, loved her to death. She fished a lot of the local ponds. And we get guys that wanted to come up, and they're like, hey, I'm just getting into this. Want to learn where I can go fish and do it on foot just to go have some bass fishing of an evening after work. And she'd list off all the ponds where she fished. And she'd show them pictures of these seven- and eight-pound bass she's catching <laughs> on these ponds. And they're like, I've been there, and I've never had that. She goes, that's because you're not using this. And she'd hook them up with all this stuff, and they'd come back and show her pictures. And it was so cool because she had the corner on the market for that. Yeah, yeah. Everybody had an answer for it. It was so cool, man. It was really, I mean, as far as a, a shop one, it was actually pretty neat from a big box store. I, I definitely value the education I got in merchandising and training, all of that, through being at big box. Yeah. It, it, it taught me a lot about what I needed to know of how to do the fly shop right based on the shortcomings of corporate. Yeah, yeah, and you could tell that because, I mean, I would be driving at, at not your OOG, but your OG location. Me and another buddy would make it a day. To drive up there to San Antonio, make make it, would go hang out and spend an hour and a half in your in your store, Absolutely. knowing that there was going to be items that there's no way I'm going to see it down here. Um, the Bass Pro was not going to carry, Tackle Box was not going to carry, Orvis wasn't open at that time, and you know that was that was twice a year we were making that, if not three times a year, yeah. making that pilgrimage up. So 
you know, when you when when the news was coming out that you were going to have your own standalone building, it's, okay, this is going to be cooler. You know, we're going to see, you know, obviously more stuff and, and all that, and we're still going. And oh, it's, I try not to tell my wife uh, that, um, you know, we're going to stop over there and usually try to pay in cash when I can. So. Right, just just, <laughs> buy, just buy donuts, keep the receipt for donuts. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, th- I mean, and that's the thing is, like, the, the way that it has gone from such humble beginnings to where we're at now, it would not be possible – I mean, just by the grace of God, from incredible partners. I mean, even the support from my family. I mean, you know, my wife, my kids, my mom, my dad. I mean, they've they've supported, you know, and believed in me when things. I mean, like a lot of people don't know, you know, they they think owning a fly shop's the coolest thing ever. And I mean, this is something. And it, it really, honestly, is. It really is. I'm not going to negate that. But I mean, they don't see. I mean, I've cried plenty of tears in that store. I mean, and, and a lot of people don't know that. I mean, when, when it's yours. I mean, because once again, I'm the building may be leased. But I, I'd lease a building anywhere. I just got to build. I got to design that one. That's what makes it so cool. Is it like literally got to say, here's how I'd like it built. And they said, great, that's awesome. Let's do that. That never happens. That, I mean, that legit never happens. And so that was something that's just kind of a really awesome miracle of itself with, you know, relationship with great people that made that happen. But the, the thing that I, I, a lot of people forget is at the end of the day, if something goes wrong, it goes wrong for me and it goes wrong in some cases because of me. And if it goes right, sometimes it's right because of me, but the, and, and likewise, but the thing that, I mean, we had a day this year that uh, this year, actually we had our single largest sales day as a store, uh, just one, one single sales day. And it was, I mean, and I won't disclose numbers cause that's not doing anybody any favors, but the thing is like, it was a number that like, I'm not even sure we made that much money in the first year of operations, like because we were so small. I mean, it was you were selling two dollar dubbing, you know. It's, you're not yeah. you're not making yeah. anything. And I sent the staff home. We counted the drawer down. Sent sent the staff home. I shut out the lights and just sat in the office chair at the front desk, bawled my eyes out. I was just like, I would have never believed as a 21 year old kid I'd see this day. I mean, it, it's just because because it wasn't sales that made the made the day so special we had hundreds of people in that store and they came out to love on the fly shop and support the fly shop and support our staff and my family and it's not it has nothing to do with selling product and that's it's so different did y'all have an event that day or was it just like a random day no we did have it we have we had an event that day we've had some crazy randoms but we did have an event that day but it was one of those things that honestly when you see people in the community give of themselves, I mean, mind you, they're walking out with awesome gear and enjoying their purchases and all that sort of stuff, but a lot of these people don't have to buy that stuff. They, they might already have a five weight. They just want a full flex one or something. You know, they want something, not a fast action. What I don't care, but they do it because they love the fly shop and they knew that that event meant a lot to us. And we, And that's, they don't have to do that. And I tell people all the time, our events are free. Our Saturday events, our Wednesday night fly tying events, we got fly tying it tomorrow night. Come on up. But, uh, you know, we've, we'll run, on average, 30-plus people at a Wednesday night fly tying night every single week. Totally free. If you're a beginner, all the materials, all the tools, all the devices, everything supplied. And that will never change. We have a couple of uh, sponsors, Wopsy, Whiting, Regal Vices, Umqua. They sponsor that tying night for the beginners just so they have free access. That's awesome. It's incredible. And we, I think right now, as best I know, and I haven't heard anybody tell me different, but it, I, and if somebody hears this and can tell me different, I'd like to know where. I think we have the largest weekly gathering of tires 
anywhere in the nation. There might be monthly ones that are bigger, but every week, I mean, our largest attendance at a fly tying night was 56 people. Wow. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that, I mean it, it, it gets a little crazy in there. Yeah. But our Saturday events, we'll bring speakers in from all over the country, and it's free. We don't want you to pay for that. We want you to learn. We want you to have access to these people. Make friends with them. I have guide, you know, Kevin Hutchison's a perfect example. He came into the store, and he he, did, he always does a great job. He does a great presentation. And he goes up there, and he goes, I want everybody in this room to know how atypical this is. He goes, Chris is technically a competitor. He has a guide service and guides the same water I guide, but he's letting me speak in his fly shop. He goes, that speaks a lot of this shop and a lot about our friendship. And I, I still, I mean, I, I hold him as a very dear friend. A lot of my guide friends and industry partners throughout the state a high tide floats all boats. And it's just one of those things that this is not about making money. It's not about selling product. It's about community. It's about family. It's about conservation, education. It's about that sort of stuff. And I tell people all the time, like, come and eat our donuts, drink our coffee, listen to our speakers, and you can leave. You don't have to buy a fly. I don't care. I'm like, that, that's not why we're here. I would, if that's why we're here, I would have quit a long time ago. <laughs> I was just say those donuts have cost me a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> Chris, so what's going on? There's a lot of uh, hoopla right now around Brushy Creek. There's a lot. Um, we, we've so what's what's the uh, what's the situation and and what are you guys trying to do to help remedy it? That that would be kind of the the conservation side of the fly shop. Yep. We, I mean, if we were going to back it up, everybody remembers the really big freeze we had uh, early 2021. Uh, what was that? Uh, Uri? Winter Storm Uri, I think that was. Yeah. <laughs> Basically, too cold for here. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. Whatever it was, it was too much of the white stuff and too much of the cold stuff. Um, but the creek froze, uh, like literally Brushy Creek froze over bank to bank in certain places, which is kind of crazy to think about when you're looking at water that's normally moving that is now frozen. Water temperatures were 40 degrees before snow melt. And the frozen bit is obviously colder, but like actual moving water was forty. Cichlids die, FYI, at like forty nine degrees. They they don't they don't tolerate anything cooler than that very often. Um, they have a couple exceptions, but not much. What happened is the sewage treatment plant. We noted uh, noticed immediately after the freeze that the water just turned brown and disgusting and it had a lot of particles in it. It was just terrible. And and I want to reiterate this for all the listeners. This is not all of Brushy Creek. It's actually just like the very easternmost edge of Round Rock, like by the Dell Diamond East. That's all it affected. So like Hutto was affected, Eastern Round Rock was affected. All the water that we like guide and all the stuff across the street from the shop, it was fine. Like that never was affected by any of this. And, and, and a lot of people don't know that. And so that's the one thing I was like, hey, look, if you're worried about all this and that's just like, hey, I don't want to get in Brushy Creek because it's disgusting. There's literally miles and miles and miles and miles of it that never were affected, like in any way, shape, or form. Okay. By this. But that plant was releasing very, very terrible water. As a result of the freeze, something happened. So what happened is that the trucks that actually haul the solid matter off, what happens is these clarifiers, these round cylinder-like holding tanks that stratify the solids from the clear water. It goes through bacterial treatment, aeration treatment, all sorts of crazy stuff. And then it gets put in the clarifier, and the clarifier basically settles it out, and they have a sweeper that comes through, and then they vac the solid stuff out of the bottom of the clarifier. The clear water that is on top is perfectly ready to release. The, the solids are not, they've already, you know, anything there is going to get vacked up. That water that gets released from the clarifier then goes through either a chlorine or a UV treatment 
to kill anything else that would be in there otherwise. But it's already been through a bacterial treatment at that point. So, I mean, sewage treatment, if you've never looked into it, it's actually pretty darn interesting and incredibly scientific. If it's done correctly, it comes out drinkable water. If it's done correctly, it's actually an extraordinarily epic benefit to the water that goes in it, to the receiving water body. In this case, it was a major detriment. What happened is they the trucks that were running that that Round Rock does not have a way to dispose of the sludge. So what happens? They they vac the sludge out. It goes through a bell press, goes through a heat treatment. They extract the water out of it, and it basically comes out almost like compost. They ship it off to a landfill, pour it in there, and bury it. It's good. It's done. They want to look at ways of repurposing it and stuff like that, like kind of like Dillo dirt and stuff yeah. like that. They they just haven't arrived there yet in Round Rock. The infrastructure's just not there. Well, the trucks that they that that did that aren't owned by the city. It's actually a third party. They stopped running due to the freeze because roads were frozen over for a week. And therefore, the sludge built up, built up, built up. And you can't just turn the spigot off because Round Rock's still flushing toilets, still drinking water. And everybody stored up water in their bathtub because of the freeze. So you're looking at everybody's been storing up water, using a lot of water, and they're pulling the plugs on the drain because everything melted and we're good and we got water back. So they were like, we're going to get it under control. We just got to get the clarifiers situated and all that. That lasted for months. That started in like, March, we did not get clear water back. It was like late spring, I think, um, that we got, I think we had two floods. No, 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 no. Well, I don't think we got it back till that fall, actually. Excuse me. I think it went all, all through the summer. And then we had, a, uh, we had a real big flood, flushed it out, and they cleared the water up. They said, this is an anomaly. It'll never happen again. But we confronted the city on it, TCQ, everything. They're like, one-off event, never happen again. It fished great from, like, October all the way through winter. And uh, I guess, I forget the time frame on it, but basically, no, it fished, it fished good all summer. They ended it early summer, fished good all summer, and then come November of the same year of 2021, the water turned brown again. And it literally fished perfectly two weeks prior. And it was, something is wrong. I was like, somewhere back again, what's going on? Come to find out, the plant was overloaded. They were taking in too much water per diem. They, I, mean, I think the plant's permitted for roughly 20 million gallons a day. I think it's like 21. But 20 million gallons a day of incoming water the plant's allowed to take. And the problem with it is they were getting, like, inflow amounts of, like, 33 million. What was the reason for the increase? Was it, I mean... So that brings us to the point where the city said it was all due to subterranean leaks in their interceptor lines. From the so, freeze. So not from... not necessarily, It could have been exacerbated by the freeze, uh-huh. but... Their deal is it was just aging pipes that, you know, water has broke through. Basically, what's happening is they said, we're getting inflow. They said that their base flow never dropped back down after that high water event. And so, in June, we had a big rain event or something like that that washed all the junk out. The creek was fishable and all was good all summer until November. Well, they never came back down to normal levels. Long story short, the water was in worse shape than it was after the freeze. And it just kept going and going and going and going. So I wound up going to city council meetings. They kept me on the stand for, golly, like 45 minutes or something like that. It, it, it just a packet meeting. Uh, going through Kept plan. you on the stand for what? So basically, any anytime you go to a, a city council meeting, you have three minutes to comment unless you're called upon by the council. They kept me up there for 40 minutes, grilling me with questions and asking me about what I saw and what I did. You know, and we took So we had Science on the Fly, who we partner with. So huge shout out to them. They're awesome. They help us do water monitoring on Brushy Creek. We take water samples. They send them off to, we get to send them to a professional lab. They do all the analytics and monitoring on it, and they post all the results so we can so they, see. They put you on the stand and kept you up there grilling you. 
Yeah, and just asking, like, you know, is there anything we could do? What are you seeing? What's going on? And, you know, they, they didn't know that we had the state fish in the creek. They didn't know that they're genetically pure. They have no idea of the actual economic benefit of the fishery. And the <laughs> one of our uh, city officials said, well, I've heard that you can go watch the city council meeting and figure out who it is. It's okay. I'll let you, I'll let you figure that out. But the, uh, he goes, this can be caused by, you know, animal waste, these E. coli readings. You know, I've read in other places that, you know, E. coli readings can be very elevated due to, you know, animal waste. He said, there's cows along that section of the river. <laughs> there's like 10 cows. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> I'm like, if anything, all they're doing is helping plants grow. I'm like, this. So, but the thing that was so funny about that is that had I thought about it at the time, I, fa- I actually looked and I talked to Travis Tidwell from Texas Parks and Wildlife Kills and Spills. I was like, where did y'all get your samples on the E. coli readings? He goes, we got them at the Redbud Crossing, which is immediately below the plant, first crossing down. If the cows were the reason for the elevated E. coli, they were owned by the city of Round Rock because they own all the property from there <laughs> to the plant. I was like, so if it's cows, they're your cows. But the, uh, I think, gosh, what was it? 400 most probable number. It's NPN is the, the value for E. coli. If you're at 400, 399 is like threshold. If you're at 400, you're out of compliance. The E. coli reading was... The first time we caught it, I think was over four thousand. Whoa! Jeez. Oh, that's nothing. It, <laughs> oh, it gets better. You want to know what it was upstream of the plant? Upstream of the plant. Upstream of the plant. It was like four thousand below the plant, something like that. Some just astronomical number. It was a. Uh, it was ten times, I believe, over the allowable limit. If I if I remember that correct, like I think that's what it was. Um, yeah, because it was four hundred. Yeah, I believe that's right. I think it was ten times over the allowable limit. Um, and I think it was like 50 times over the like median limit or something. I forget, I forget the math on it. It's been a while since I looked at the numbers. So full confession, if this is wrong, just forget it. But, uh, it was something like that. But I do know this, the reading above the plant was 67. So (laughs) it goes 67 MPN to thousands. The only thing that changes, there's a pipe. (laughs) So, I mean, that's, they're like, it's not, you know, and the thing was, is round rock kept coming back with. We're within our permit. We're within our permit. Within our permit, and I literally just looked at him like, "You may be, but if this is the permit, the permit's broken." Come to find out, upon digging, Round Rock is legally, legally by TCEQ. So I don't blame this all on Round Rock. TCEQ, I love. I'm going to throw out a huge shout out to the Swickham team. All the water monitoring folks that come out and do the dirty work and come check all these conditions and actually make sure that they wave the red flag when something's wrong best people you ever meet they're awesome i don't know what's going on at the official levels of tceq all i know is that i will put it this way round rock is legally at current standing right now as we speak able to release almost 2700 pounds of solid matter into that creek every single day what allowed that's over a ton of solid waste in a creek that typically runs about 30 CFS, <laughs> that math does not add up. No, it would just no. pile up. Right. <laughs> so they might have been within permit. That's so, yeah, over. so city council saying, oh, we're oh, within we're, permit. We're, we're, we're not doing anything We're wrong. great, except for we're dumping literally a ton. Now, here's the kicker. Austin, the city of Austin, has a wastewater treatment plant, quite large, does 40 million gallons in release per day. Round Rock does 20 million gallons in release per day. If we were to cut, and this math is a little hard to follow, but this is this is kind of the weird deal. 
if you were to cut Austin's release in half, okay, just so we're comparing apples to hours, uh, apples to apples, 20 million, 20 million, okay, they're releasing 40 million, but if we cut it in half, you do that, they are releasing approximately 250 pounds or less of solids per day into Colorado. It's actually significantly less. And what's the CFS of Colorado, though? I mean, it's... Average flow is 750. Right. Average, average on brushy, I think, when I did medium average or median average, it was 70. Yeah. Now, <laughs> 10 here, times. But here's... <laughs> we, are, uh, we were releasing... Round Rock was releasing 10 times the amount of solids in one-tenth of the water body. <laughs> and here's the crazy part. TCEQ's permits are almost rubber stamps. The volumes might be different, but the the thing is, is your discharges are kind of almost congruent. So they're not looking at what it's actually discharging into. They are into, not. They, 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 they will tell discharged. you. I, I asked so many people, oh, yeah, this is you know established by the EPA. It's super scientific. The more we looked at it, it's literally a rubber stamp. And I mean, because if Austin's allowed to do this and Round Rock's allowed to do this, but they're two totally different rivers, but their limits are the same. I mean, almost identical. Not completely, but almost. I'm like, this is ridiculous. Nobody's actually looking at the problem. Mm -hmm. The problem isn't round. I mean, yes, it's Round Rock's inability to treat it, but TCEQ was permitting it to happen. And so Round Rock was operating at near or dead last in sewage treatment quality in Texas. I'm happy to say that through a very long fight, and they, they went and they took sonar and TV cables and went all down these pipes to try to find leaks. And they, they just knew they were going to find the geyser. They knew they were going to find the one that was just split open and just pouring a whole creek worth of water in there. They never found it. Yeah, They found some leaks. It's good they found them because it's still good to shore that up and they are going to get repaired. And it's about, I think, I think it was about four, maybe five million gallons a day that they were able to, you know, locate that they estimate were coming in. So, I mean, that's good. That, that definitely drops your level of, you know, incoming water to the plant. It's helpful, but it's not what it, that drop in the bucket compared to what they were over. And so, you know, that wasn't the issue. So what they did is they brought a new clarifier online that was already scheduled to be brought online, but they finally got it operational. When that happened, the water immediately cleared up because it now stays on plant longer and has time to settle out. The problem is, is Round Rock does not have tertiary filtration, and that is a cloth membrane filter that that water goes through before it touches the creek so that no solids or very few solids, like when I say few, like almost none, right. actually make it to the creek. So it does not have this cloth filter. It doesn't, but Austin, so, Austin does. So, okay, so Round Rock is just relying on this uh, settling process, yep. right? Yeah, and the thing is, is normally you have a primary and a secondary clarifier. Uh -huh. They have two primaries. There are no secondaries. And so the, the plant's really not for, for an infrastructure. It was good maybe 10 years ago. Right. We're a much bigger city now. In the 70s, Round Rock was like 3,500 people. What is it now? 150,000. Oh, wow. Okay. So, I mean, it, it's, it's exploded. So our infrastructure has not kept up. They, they spent $108 million in the construction of a new plant but it's just not finished yet. It's supposed to be finished tail end of next year. Oh, wow. So, but the clarifier came online early, so it gives the, the water there. But this, this, this is so funny. They declined a bid and rejected it for tertiary filtration in 2017. They had an opportunity to put it in, and now we're here. They could have, like, the problem could have darn near been solved, except for it wasn't in existence. Right. Now we're having to put it in, and the product's more expensive. They're spending, so long and short, we actually won the fight. They have agreed to put in ter tertiary filtration on every plant. There's a west plant and the larger east regional plant 
they're putting tertiary filtrations on each plant. And that's that cloth filter. Cloth membrane filter, and then it goes through a UV treatment or chlorine treatment so that, like, literally it's, I mean, typically they'll use UV. And they were trying to use UV. They were, they were telling me, hey, the water's fine. Even though it's got solids in it, it runs through UV treatment. I don't know a whole lot about UV light, but it doesn't shine through cloudy water. So theoretically, the poop in the middle is still the poop in the middle. And I'm like, so I, mean, I was just like, don't say that it's been partially treated. It's still crap. I'm like, right. yeah. we, we, got, we got E. coli readings. This is crazy. At the 123 crossing below the plant, when it was at its worst, we got them of over 21,000 oh, most probable numbers. And you said 400 is the, is the limit. 400, it's one in every 10,000 people will, I think it's one in every 10,000 contracts a gastric illness at, at one at, in 400. Oh, my God. At 20 some odd thousand, there is, I mean, they had to put up signs, do not get in the water. And eat, that was only at our coaxing. They really did not respond to the error well at all. Oh. And so it was literally us staying on them, like, put up signs. Nobody knows. Have you seen these numbers? We're in permit. Your permit is broken. You know, it's just like it was all, I mean, we couldn't get anybody to do it. But I will give major props. Brooks Bennett, I think he's assistant city manager or planner uh, in Round Rock, salt of the earth, just champion for the creek. That guy... Literally, I have. I, I probably. I should probably send him a box of thank you donuts. <laughs> I mean, honestly, <laughs> like the guy is just phenomenal. He was so good, and uh, Matt Baker, who is also on city council, he used to work for TCEQ, and so I sat down with him and had a face to face meeting. We had a great conversation, and there were a few other people behind the scenes that I'll leave out that, um, you know, really did a great job of making sure that city. And this was in the city that the city actually mobilized, and we also had. The, seriously, very large contingent of flyinglers that were very upset at people, you know, not stewarding the creek well. We had a homeowners association in Round Rock. Martin Milner was the one that headed that whole uh, spearhead up. The guy's a statistician. He was able to do graphs and everything and present them to the city and just goes, it broke. And a positive it, homeowners association. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, they were grumpy. Every, every, every HOA is grumpy, but they, they had a right to be. So, but, but but city councils, the last thing they want is an HOA in their council hall. So, because that's all they hear from. But the, but the job got done. They're they're installing tertiary filtration uh, to the tune of twenty million dollars. Uh, and Round Rock has said that every drop of water that they treat will pass through that filter before it touches the creek. Mm. So literally, the fight that has been won in the last calendar year has ironclad Brushy's future. For my kids and my kids' kids. So currently, awesome. are there are there any issues, or are there any issues that you're foreseeing in the sure near future? Near future, right now, what we have, we had a seven foot rise. We had a crazy rainstorm that parked over the headwaters of Brushy Creek, and it washed all the sludge for the most part out. So dilution is the solution. It sent it all downstream somewhere. And I'm I'm kidding. That's not. It's, <laughs> it's not. It's terrible that that is actually what happened. So it's like not our problem anymore. But somebody <laughs> have fun hooping cranes. It's like oh my gosh, what a terrible way to do this. But the thing is, like most of the sludge is gone down there. I'm telling people now that it's totally fishable. But I would wear waders in that stretch. Anything below the creek, or, or excuse me, below the uh, treatment plant. Still wear waders just so you're not in contact with the water. It's pro I, like I personally wouldn't. It would. I've waited way worse than what it is right now. I would just recommend that being that what it's been through. Right. But there are fish everywhere, which is shocking because those fish. We got oxygen readings. Uh, Travis Tibble was telling me that they got oxygen readings of two parts per million. Fish like go hypoxic. I think below five or something like that. So I mean, it literally like at two, they're dead. Yeah. Mm -hmm. These fish got incoming groundwater, went up incoming creeks. They hid. 
and they manage to persist. Body shape is good. No sores, no lesions, nothing like that. They're actually in perfect shape. I caught huge reels down there a couple of weeks ago. Wow. And there's adult bass and carp and everything. I was just like, it looks like, I mean, the numbers aren't where they were, but they're still really, really right. good. Like, they're healthy yeah. fish. If I had not seen it before, I'd be like, man, this place is awesome. But I mean, like, I saw it before, and yeah, it's probably about half of what it was. But give us two, three years, we're going to be rocking it. And Round Rock currently, even without tertiary filtration installed, is operating in the top 20% of plants in the state. Wow. So yeah. a huge turnaround. Huge turnaround. Dead last to top 20. Wow. That's, and that's and awesome. the water, I think we're getting it like, uh, I think our uh, TSS value, which is total suspended solids, um, we were at, oh gosh, I don't even remember what it was. It was terrible. I don't remember what the amount was. I, I'd be making it up at this point. But it was bad. It was terrible. Like off the off this charts bad. I think it was like 1.27. So like nothing. Like yeah. legit nothing. I mean, very acceptable. I mean, that that's the kind of readings that Austin gets with a filter. Right. So, I mean, we're doing that without a filter. So, I mean, yeah. the good news is, is now the, the incoming water is a benefit, and we had a wash. We need about two more floods to really, really clean it because there's a little bit in the backwaters that still needs to go. But that's why I said, totally fish it. Go check it out. We need people to actually go down there and take a look at it. Just wear waders when you do it. Yeah. I mean, it's nothing you got to worry about if you got a cut on your hand or anything like that. The water's actually clean and moving. And any of the solids that have been in there have now been fully decomposed. It just is a little unsightly in the backwaters. But the main main creek is all clean gravel. Everything's turned over. It looks really, really good. Awesome. That's good. Uh, did it did it wreak havoc on the insects? <sighs> we saw a trico hatch that would rival anything you would see out west when we were down there a couple of weeks wow. ago. Okay. So if it did, we haven't seen it. That's good to know. So yeah, that that's that's been really encouraging. So I think. Honestly, the future is bright for brushy. Um, I, I, we do have two other treatment plants on the upper portions. Uh, we have one in Cedar Park and one in Leander. Um, we've had a few problems with those in the past. Um, the one in Cedar Park has to hit Brushy Creek Lake before it comes down, so pretty much anything winds up getting anything that goes wrong up there only affects about a mile and a half of Smallwater Creek. And we right. did have a chemical spill. Uh, I think it was last year in November. Um, oh, that's right with a fish kill, right? But yeah, there was a fish kill, and then Leander actually just had a spill very recently uh, that actually had a fish kill there. So I mean, the thing is, we're not out of the woods, right? But that's where anglers have to keep people accountable. I mean, like you have to be eyes on the water. Yeah. You, you're a steward. Do you feel like a difference would have been made if you weren't? going to city council meetings do you feel like the change would have no, no. They, they, they never admitted the problem i mean w the the public would have never known kvu news came out and did reports on it and they actually just did an update i mean i gotta give them kudos they've been out there a couple of times three times four times uh just keeping people posted the city did legit nothing in the beginning to inform anybody of anything wrong we were the one that actually <laughs> is so bad when we were filming with science on the fly we caught them in their highest day of non-compliance like where it was, I think it was 17,000 MPN coming out of the discharge in E. coli. And it went from crystal clear, beautiful, perfect water. Y'all might have seen the video where I'm in it. Yep. It's perfectly yep. clean. And then there's just brown line. Yeah. yeah. And it was the worst day. I think one of the worst single days they ever had of noncompliance. And I had a film crew with 4K cameras in the river. <laughs> I was like, yeah. this is, actually, they were. I think those were 8K cameras. That was a red we were shooting with. But it was just, it was amazing. Yeah. And we were able to put that out and say, this no water anywhere deserves this. And it's changed the story. But now we know how to fight. That's the thing that's so cool about it. Is I, I didn't want to take legal action or anything like that unless I had to. And I, thankfully, I didn't, I didn't want to do that. Litigation's messy. And I want people just to do the right thing. I, I just honestly like, hey, problem. You. Fix it. 
This is your town. Your this is what our tax money goes to. Is like we got problems, you fix it. That that's how this works. And thankfully, that's how it went. But it took a lot longer than what I would have liked. But the good news is, the fight was shorter than I thought it would have been. Yeah. So I, I think the solution's going to take longer. But we're we're already in the clear. It's uh, things are looking significantly better. Right. And we have people that we know in the city that are, you know, because you get a little, you know, disgusted at city council when, you know, they're asking, well, can we take the fish out of the creek and move them somewhere else? And I'm like, <laughs> it doesn't work like that. And that's no fault of theirs. That's true. They don't know. They don't, yeah, they, they don't know. True. I mean, it's just like there's not a grasp on the issue. Right. You know, because they don't go down there. They don't fish. I mean, we, we know this stuff because that's where we're at. That's what we're doing. Yeah. But, you know, for them, they didn't know. So that that's the part where I think – you know, it's on us as a shop and as anglers to educate the public mm-hmm. about what we have. I mean, even fishing down, you know, we're downtown San Antonio today. It's awesome down there. Yep. It's awesome. Yep. I'm like, there's native plants everywhere. We saw passion flowers. There's all kinds of great grasses and stuff, including ragweed. Snakes. <laughs> oh, there's so many snakes. Yep. Holy yep. smoke, there's snakes. They're, they're all venomous. Don't ever fish there. I'm, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> but... Lots of coral snakes, though. Yeah. Oh, man. It's so cool. Oh, really? I haven't seen one down there. I haven't. Yeah, I haven't either. Ooh. I just saw water snakes that could probably eat me. Like, they were, yeah, they were huge. Big. They were so big, but there was also cichlids that could almost eat me, so I don't care. <laughs> I will wade through a lot of water snakes to get cichlids <laughs> over 10 inches. I'm good. But, uh, I mean, it, it's just incredible because those urban waterways are where we fish. It's our backyard. That's where we go. So we've got to protect them. we got to fight for them. And we have to let people know that they're there. Otherwise, they just get run over. And that's that's kind of where we are as anglers, is I think the conservation side of angling, uh, you know, with all the negatives we mentioned prior, I'd say the conservation side of angling is on a crescendo and an mm-hmm. uptick because there's more awareness than ever before because you're able to put the issue in front of people. Yep. Yeah. So, Chris, let's talk about Tinkara fishing. So I like it. We're going we're <laughs> to jump, jump right in. Right I was curious. I, think, I was hoping we'd, we'd bring this up. So, Tinkara... Uh, is a lot of times a butt into fly fishing jokes. Oh, yes. Um, you sell Tinkara rods in your shop. You are a known Tinkara angler. I am. I have never picked up a Tinkara rod. I've picked one up. I've never fished a Tinkara rod. Um, Tinkara has been at the butt end of my personal jokes. I just It's an easy target. It, it is. It, it's low-hanging so, fruit. Um, convince me to fish Tinkara. <laughs> the easiest way to do that, truly, is to put one in your hand. I mean, and really have you fish it. The first, I, I'll fully admit this. The first time I fished Tinkara, but a friend of mine had it. He said, here, try this. I caught like four fish on. I was like, all right, you know, it's, it's all right. When I started really messing with it, like, because, I mean, it's a great creek tool. Mm-hmm. And for me, Tinkara is a tool, not an end all. It, it, you're, not everything's a roll cast. Not everything's a double haul. Not everything's a five weight. You know, sometimes you want something different. The strengths of Tinkara are the fact that you're in direct connection with the fly because the, the level line is actually what I prefer to use. Once again, fluorocarbon, incredibly sensitive. And you can feel a fish breathe on that fly. If it as much looks at it, you, it's almost like I have set the hook on stuff that I would have never set the hook on a fly rod. It's been biggest fish of the day, like where you just never, never would have known. So there's, there's a connection to the fly that is unparalleled in even conventional fly fishing. The other thing is, the argument is, well, it's not fly fishing. It's cane poling. I've cane poled before. We all grew up. We all did that. <laughs> and if you didn't, then you missed out. It's good fun. You cut you. I mean, 
me and my friends, it was so easy. We, we, I grew up fishing. So, I mean, like, we'd go out and we would catch untold amounts of bluegill and sunfish and stuff like that on the local ponds. So we just wanted to see like how stupid we could make it because it was too easy with rods and reels. So we'd go off into the woods. We'd find us like a 20 foot down limb and tie like some six pound test on the end of it. And we walk up and we tie that bobber on and all these adults are feeling so sorry for us. These two little kids holding this log and we were just yanking sunfish out. So I mean like I've been on the other end of that too where you just try to make fishing as ridiculous as you can. But with Tinkara, the thing that people forget what, how would you define fly fishing? What makes fly fishing different than any other kind of fishing? How would you define that? You're casting the line Boom. as opposed to... Exactly. Yeah. The line, not the weight of the bait. That is the most fundamental element of difference in fly fishing versus any sort of bass fishing or anything like that. Tinkara, the line is heavier than the fly. You're still making a loop. You're still casting a fly. And here's the one that chaps everybody. It is more actually like fly fishing than tournament fly fishing, like check nymphing, euro nymphing, stuff like that, because they're using tungsten weighted everything. I mean, you're, you're literally just lob casting and tuck casting everything. Mm-hmm. It's kind of almost like a pendulum and, you know, tight lying situation. So, I mean, there's not an right. actual loop forming right. most of the time. It's just get it in the water, get it on the fish. It's dirty, but it works. I mean, anybody that is euro nymphed, it is awesome. It is, oh, <laughs> You Gosh, catch everything. So, it is. Including you catch all the catfish. All the catfish. Oh, it's like a heron in a fish hatchery, man. It catches everything. So, <laughs> and that and that uh, questionable uh, state record uh, Rio that was caught a couple of weeks ago. That's oh man. Oh, oh, oh you've got to show it. We'll talk to. We'll talk about. Yeah, it. Oh, this yeah. Is yeah. A, the off yeah. air. Okay. Yeah. Was it was it state record or was it water body record? It would have been okay. Yeah, I was about to say state. I don't want to dive down that hole. Yeah, I, let, I, let's. I, we'll, we'll talk. Yeah, we'll talk about it after. Yeah, because some of the stuff I, I don't want this to be on record. So anyway, the, but then, Tinkara. So yeah, actually, that, that's, <laughs> that'll be way more controversial <laughs> than this topic. Uh, so, but yeah, Tinkara, the thing about it is, is you like if you're throwing, you know, traditional like the Tinkara reverse hackle kabari as they call it. I'm not into all that. Like, I'm not. I'm not like the diehard Tinkara person. The thing that I, I mean, but I, I'll admit it. I went fishing today. I had a three weight, a four weight, a five weight, and a six weight in the car. And about and a couple of Tinkara rods. I knew I was going to be fishing for cichlids all day. That's what I wanted. Mm-hmm. If I was going to go fish for bass, probably would have grabbed the three weight. I'm fishing for cichlids. I pulled a Tinkara rod out. I wound up landing like a four pound tilapia in the process. But I mean, it's just one of those things of it can take a bigger fish than what people give it credit for. I've caught trout that are probably four or five pounds on it. I've caught channel cats that are about the same. You know, caught some really. I've caught carp on them. Um, but I mean, it's for me the amount of accuracy with which you can cast is unparalleled because you're doing it in a fixed system. It is a fixed line method of fly fishing, if you want to look at it like that. You don't have anything to add or subtract from the equation. So if you had a fly rod and you just clamp your line down and you just didn't add or subtract anything, you'd essentially, and you weren't allowed to strip in, you're Tinkara fishing. Honestly, you can do the same thing. It's just inefficient because you have the physical weight of the line that is dragging it down. Tinkara, the goal is to keep the line off the water. That way you're in direct connection with the fly. In a trout arena, if your fishing dries on it, you never have to mend. Mm-hmm. And you can work pockets that the guy working a six foot two weight or even a seven foot three weight, whatever, he'll never put a fly in that pocket and keep it there. I can hold it there because the line doesn't weigh anything. It's not dragging my fly downstream. So it has a lot of benefit, but it's not like everybody's like, well, is that all you do? Absolutely not. I like casting too much. It's a lot of fun. I mean, I'm a certified casting instructor. I enjoy fly casting. But I do know where it is the strongest, strongest position 
to use is like with within cichlids, you are looking at vertical presentations that are motion heavy, not linear motion, but like vibration motion. And that's Tenkara is like made for that. So even even that, you know, it's more of a check nymphing. It's not going to be elegant on the casting on some of those heavier weighted right. flies we're using for cichlids, but neither is check nymphing. But this is still more effective than check nymphing. Mm-hmm. So if you want to put a reel on it and throw a 10-foot fly rod to do it, great. If that helps you out and that, that scratches your itch, that's great. I will probably catch more and bigger fish doing it without a reel. And, and, I mean, and it's not because I'm better. It's just I can feel more. Right. It's, it's just I literally am in touch with what's going on. And I cannot tell you how many fish that I have caught that I owe to the method of Tinkara more than anything. There's a lot of uh, write-ups and stuff talking about Tinkara fishing as a beneficial uh, you know, rod for beginner fly fishermen, especially kids. Yeah. Is that... Is that what you've seen as well? I mean, I've got I've got kids in the house, so perfect right. can. I mean, we posted a video online of Lydia. She went out there, had a little Tinkara rod, and she stuck a cichlid, a Guadalupe bass, and a sunfish all on her own. I mean, she's five years old, casting it, working the fly, landing the fish, freaking out. Now, she can cast a normal fly rod too, but the independence factor of not having to work with stripping line and line management, those are all great skills to know, but you want to set your kids up to win. If they get frustrated, they don't stick with it. And so for me, fishing trips are short with them, and they got to win fast. Yeah. And, and that's the thing. I mean, thankfully, as a fishing guide for most of my known life, that's the, it's helpful that we can kind of engineer that. We can take them to high percentage areas with small flies and let them just wreak havoc. But they're just as happy picking through a bug tray as they are catching fish or throwing rocks or getting in the water. Just make it fun. Make mm-hmm. the memory. But that's the part. As a training tool, I think they're great. But it's not something, if I'm trying to teach somebody how to cast, I'm not going to give them a Tenkara rod. If I want to teach somebody how to just get in the sport and make it simple, yeah, it's not a bad method. And I, and I think it, it really is packable. I mean, you're looking at a Tenkara rod's two ounces. That's less than a fly reel. Right. So if you're packing in, backpacking, it makes a way for you to fish without the cumbersome amount of tackle or any of that sort of stuff. It's handy. And I mean, and it's an easy thing to keep in the car. I, I, I tell people this. Tenkara rods basically allow fly, they just make fly fishing happen. It just allows it to happen. You don't have to plan for it. You keep a cup of flies, a spool of tippet, some hemostats, and the rod collapsed in the back of the car. You are ready to fish in 30 seconds. And the rod's already rigged with a fly on it. You don't have to string it up. You just unroll the spool, ship it out, you're fishing. I have stopped at so many Hill Country Road crossings and literally done just that. Pull it all out, catch about 10 fish, get back on my road trip. Mm. And it's something that normally you're having to pull a rod out, pull it out of the case, put it together, slap the reel on, string it up, put a new leader on, put a new tippet on. This thing's ready to go. I'm fishing in, you know, 30 seconds. And and that's really cool because if you just want to let it happen or you're like, oh, there's a fish, I probably ought to catch it. I got a rod in the car, come to think of it. I cannot tell you how many times that has happened. Is the casting the same? Exactly. Okay. Because but it's easier with that because I have a, I have a Tinkar as well. But you want to have more of your pointer on top of the. He, you heard it here. He admitted it. He's got yeah. one. So yeah. oh, they know that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. We give him grief. Yeah. Good. <laughs> no, that, that, and that's fine. But the thing that like, it, well, he's it, never come back and said, "Well, I catch more fish." That's true. But also, I don't use it often, especially since I got yeah. the rare rod. Because I was the same way. I had the Tinkara in my car, or like if I was. Going to visit my dad in Tennessee, and it wasn't a fishing trip. I would bring that with me, right? Um, but now I bought a, or I got a rare rod, um, which I don't know if you know what it is. It's the telescoping fly rod that has the reel and the line. Oh yeah, uh-huh. the line shoots up through a gap, yep. maybe a few inches above mm-hmm. the the cork, and uh, that's become my, my 
Gotcha. That's the go-to. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it for me, it's a tool in the toolbox. It's yeah. not an end-all. I know some people that just that that's what they want to do. Let's be honest. TFO was making them for a while. Yeah. I want to say, I think it was Rick Pope, that he was quoting the number of people that were introduced to fly fishing because of Tinkara. You get broke off by enough big fish on a Tinkara rod, you're going to want a five weight. Yeah. So it's a great gateway drug, essentially, where you're just going, hey, you're going to catch a lot of fish. It's going to be really easy. This ain't all that's out there, but every fly you can throw on a three weight, you can throw on this rod. So TFO's not making Tinkara rods anymore? I don't believe so. Well, were they, were they partnered with Tinkara USA? They were not. Okay. Uh, so Tinkara, is that what you sell is Tinkara USA? Yeah, we sell Tinkara USA. Daniel Gallardo. Um, but he just sold the company. He sold the company. He And honestly, it has changed. It's changed a little bit. And the fact that, like, Daniel really did want to make it a community of anglers. And he, you know, he had his own podcast. He did a pretty good, I was on it once. He did actually a really good job. Um, just, I, I, he actually came down and fished the hill country after Trout Fest one time with us. Oh, really? Caught Guadalupe bass. I, I watched him on a Tinkara USA Sato catch a three and a half pound largemouth on a size 14 Rio getter. And I, I, I mean, dude, it was like, I hate to use the term poetry in motion, but like, I don't do yoga or anything like that because I'm about as flexible as a board. But that guy did things holding that rod and stretching out and making sure that fish wasn't going to break off. I would have lost that fish 10 times over. He landed that fish, and I just, I was dumbfounded. I had no idea you could land a bass that big on that small tackle. Is it because of the tippet size, or why? Yeah, yeah, What's I mean, the that, limiting factor on tippet uh, size? I mean, I'm, I'm using 4X most of the time. Yeah. And, just using, in a lot of you, cases, 5X. Are you using uh, just straight 4X, or are you putting a taper leader on? Uh, I don't put taper at all. It's just straight 4X from the Tinkara line. From the ring to the, just to your fly. I don't actually use a ring. I do direct. Really? Yeah, I do direct okay. knots on the level line. Which line are you so using? Um, which line are you using? Which I'm using Tinkara a. Line? I usually use the Tinkara USA. Um, that furled. No, it's actually a level fluorocarbon line that's a four point five. Okay. We have no idea what the decimals are all about. Okay. Four point five just means it's the biggest one. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Okay, and turns over flies pretty easily. Oh yeah. yeah. No, no problem. That's, I do. I need to get a new line for mine because I was the one. Thing. The, the level line is actually what really revolutionized it for me. Really? The, the tapered lines are easier to cast, I yeah. think, but the level lines, it's like opening up a whole other sensory dimension. I mean, you could feel everything. Mm. So, yeah, it's the brunt of a lot of jokes, but the, the thing is, when I put it in people's hands, they and they really do it, not just like throw it all around and do crazy stuff with it. When I actually am like, hey, put that fly there, let it sink down, Try to stay in touch with your fly as you retrieve it. They're catching fish. What does that retrieval look like? Honestly, it kind of looks like you have Parkinson's. Uh, I mean, I'm not kidding. Yeah. It's it's literally, for me, like with a Rio Bandito, which is the fly that I fish 90% of the time on Tinkara, I'm throwing the fly out, letting it sink, and then literally as I retrieve, I'm slightly lifting the rod and just quivering my finger because you're, you're, you're doing an index finger on top of the rod and a thumb on top of the rod like a fly rod. And so you're actually just kind of quivering that finger as the fly kind of approaches back to you and honestly, it's extraordinarily effective. And I mean, it, I mean, you can dead drift stuff if you're trout fishing and you can, you know, dry fly fish. You can fish poppers on it. It's great to fish poppers with you. Just twitch, pause, twitch, pause, twitch, yeah. pause. Easy. No problem at all. Grasshoppers, any of that stuff's great. And if, we, you, and if we have a client, I mean, a perfect example. This, this is probably the greatest example I can give for Tinkara. I had a father-son guide trip one time on the San Gabriel. They booked a half day. So dad wants to introduce kid into fly fishing. You know, classic, classic thing. He's like, don't worry about me. I've got my own fly rod. Make sure he has a great day. I brought my own rod for him that was size appropriate. It was very clear to me in the first 15 minutes of that trip that there was no fly casting happening at that 
in that juncture in time. And that kid made one cast, hooked a sunfish, and it slacklined him, and it wrapped around us like three times, and we actually landed the one fish on a fly rod. But it was so inefficient and so almost disastrous. I said, I tell you what, I brought this really cool rod that this kind of fishing originated in Japan. You want to try this out? I I telescoped that rod out, and he's like, that's cool. Kid on his own caught 55-0 fish that morning in a half-day trip. The only reason I remember the number is I said, how many fish do you want to catch today? He goes, 10. I was like, I think you're going to catch more than that. And he goes, do you think so? I was like, yeah. So you just keep count. And he yelled the number at his dad every single fish he caught. <laughs> and he got to 50. He's like, 50. And so I'll never forget. Yeah. He got 50 fish. But that Tenkara saved his trip. I mean, really, honestly. He was not going to fly cast. And you can crank the line down on the rod. You can do all that. But that's hard, man. I mean, yeah. if, you're, if you're a kid and you're excited about fishing... You're not interested in learning just technique. Take or even piece, just, just holding take that, that piece line. away. Yeah. yeah. Just take it away. Well, even just holding that line the second you hit the fly hits the water. So that way if it gets a strike, you're ready to set. You know, yep. because so many of them, they cast it and then that the line comes out from underneath their finger and next thing you know they cast yep. it. Well, I, finger open. I think about guys on real recovery, some of them have like mobility issues and stuff like that. I feel like a Tinkara rod at real recovery would be beneficial. Yeah. For at least somebody. I really do. Yeah. This is really and I and I like what you said too because I think some of the Tenkara uh, guys I've talked to and what has been slightly frustrating to me is it's Tenkara or die in the same way people are fly or die which I'm in that category fly or die. Um, but we talked to yeah you're on for die. We talked all. We talked to <laughs> Joe. <laughs> we talked to Joe Sermelli last week. He's fifty percent fly, fifty percent conventional. He actually said sixty. Yeah, he 40. was all yeah. He was like, he, and, he, and we talked to him about like why you conventional fish versus fly fish. What and he's like it's just it's a tool. Yep. Depending on what I want to do, it's a tool in my box, and I kind of like your approach to it as opposed to some other. Um, as of some of some other guys I've talked to, they're like only, only ten car. I only ten car fish, well, no. I mean, and they yeah. they fish the backwards tackle flies, and yeah. I'm just like, oh, whatever. I mean, and, and those work, and those are great. I've fished them; they are very effective. But I mean, you don't have to. I mean, you can run as far down that rabbit hole as you want. I mean, there's people in fly fishing that it's bamboo rods only, dry yeah. fly only, and yeah. then you know they're trying to do. There, I, I talked to one of my guide friends. He went on a guide trip that the guy tied all of his own flies. The only request from him is he booked the trip with the shop. He said, I want your best guide. I want him to meet me at the ramp here. I'm using my rod, my flies. Only request is that he doesn't talk to me all day. Okay. And this guy got in the front of the boat, and, and my buddy said, I've never seen an angler like this. He said he was the best dry fly fisherman I've ever had in my boat. And he said, and he never set the hook on a single fish. He said he literally was either using hookless flies or not hooking the fish on purpose. He literally just get the rise out of them and just pull the fly away from them. And he said, we had fish rise in there that he said, I did not know were in that river, and I guided it every day of every week. He said he caused fish to rise that I had never seen an entire season or in multiple seasons. He said this guy just was unparalleled. He goes, but he went down that rabbit hole of, I want to do it my way. I don't want anybody to tell me how to do it different. This is what I want to do. But he had the chops. <laughs> so yeah, it's like, he backed it up. So, I mean, but there's that. But, I mean, that's the thing of, like, don't knock it till you've really tried it. Yeah. And, I mean, and, and then the best way to really try it, honestly, in my opinion, is on sunfish and cichlids. It, it is such an incredible tool. I went to the uh, to the Lano out in Junction last year. Fished one day out, out in Junction, which is not enough. But I fished one day with Tinkara. 
I literally brought one rod, 4X tippet, level line, a box of banditos. That's it. And I mean, we waded down that river. I caught over 100 cichlids in a day. And I caught probably about as many bass and sunfish. I don't really, I'll catch that many fish. That's fine, but I don't have to. But the thing is crazy is like with Tinkara, it's just easy. Yeah. You know, you're, you're hooking him. You just tilt the rod back. Fish slides to you. You unhook him. You're back in the water in and, five and, seconds. And ultimately, that's what you went out to do anyway. You're right. We're out there to catch fish. So I, I get to enjoy my surroundings too because I can, I'm fishing one handed. Yeah. I, I can, I literally, on my pre work fishes, this happens a lot when I'm cichlid fishing in the fall. It's slow. They're, they're, when it gets cool, they're slowing down. I go get a cup of coffee at a local coffee shop. I sit there and drink my coffee and hold my Tinkara rod while I'm fishing because I know I'm going to get a couple of bites. That's it. And I, and I literally, and my bites will be big though. They're going to be nine inch, 10 inch fish. But I literally drink a coffee while I am fly fishing. And I'm like, you're not going to do that yeah. <laughs> any other way. And, I, and it doesn't have to be, you know, in a Yeti with a sealed lid or anything. I'm just like, it's an open coffee cup. <laughs> so <laughs> I just rinse it out, crumple it up, and put it in my pack and walk out. It's great. But I mean, it's the simplistic style of it. So I mean, it's just a tool. But it, I mean, if we wanted to get down to brass tacks, if we were going to compare apples to apples, Tinkara from a casting standpoint is more like fly fishing than even mm-hmm. Euro nymphing. Just because it has a reel doesn't make it fly fishing. Agree. Before we end, because we've already gone way over, let's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> which I knew was going to happen. So, what's kind of the update with GRTU? With the trout lease and trout fest and everything going on, kind of sure. what's a status update? So the lease program went, I think, about as smooth as I've ever seen it go. There, and in no small way, that is due to Roblin Pettit. Roblin hung the moon. She she worked harder than any one person on this entire process. Um, Bill Marshall helped a ton with some of the online stuff that we did. Um, I wound up doing. It's so funny. I made a joke about this. I was like. When I, my first job in the chapter was uh, lease rep. I was actually the Central Texas lease rep. So I went around saying, join our lease program. You know, here's dog and pony show. Here's some pictures of some big fish. Here's all the rules and regs. Would you like to sign up? And these fly shops would use those as huge event days. So I did presentations at multiple fly shops around town and whatnot. So, and it wasn't just mine. So I did these and uh, <laughs> it was so funny. Then I became VP of membership and they still kept me doing lease or- orientation. So I was still doing that. Then I was like, guys, my fly shop's too busy. I got to leave the board all the lease orientations went away from person. They were gone. So I was like, I left and all the lease orientations left. First year back on the board, what comes back? Live lease orientations. So I was like, <laughs> what is the deal? So we did them on Zoom. It was perfect. It worked really well. It, I mean, honestly, it, we, we didn't have any hangups. Tons of questions answered. I think we're going to have a lot fewer infractions. We didn't even sell out. That's the crazy thing. Since there wasn't this mad, crazy rush that was crashing systems, we went through GiveSmart. So they've got the servers to support like probably a hundred times over anything we'd put on them. And it was seamless. I mean, we had literally people like we're normally, we have, we've had people, I'm not kidding. We're all volunteers. We all work for free. And we had people threaten to take legal action against us last year because they didn't get their stupid pass. And I'm like, that is what you want to sue someone over? Oh, my gosh. You, I, I, no, I mean... A, non, to, for a nonprofit. A, my like. wife, Emily, a lot of people don't know this. When I was VP of membership, she was behind the scenes packaging badges, mailing those out, and she was actually doing all the logistics stuff. And that was actually... Uh, she did, I think, for a year or two. I told her to quit because so many people were F-bombing her yeah. over the phone. And she was pregnant at the time. I'm like, 
I've got a pregnant wife yeah, doing no this for not a lot of money. It was a very little amount of money to do that because they actually paid a secretary to do it. It wasn't a board position. And so uh, Phil Dobson had a lady that was super sweet that did it you know, when he was doing VP of membership. And then when I was doing it, they said, well, you know, she, I think the person he had moved on, they're like, we need somebody else. I'm like, Emily can do it. She did it. And it was great. But like when people wouldn't get their pass or get lost in the mail or the post office screw up, it was just like terrible. Like yeah. the, the lease members were like just spewing profanity at my wife. And I'm like, my she's, gosh. I'm like, it's not even her fault. Like your TU number was wrong on the sign-up or, you know, the mail didn't ship the package because the postage was off because you live in Bula Bula or something, you know. It, we just didn't need that kind of stuff. So, I mean, I told her to quit. I was like, you do not need to do this anymore. I can't, and I, I just don't get people, They're I get people's frustrations with wanting to sign up and everything crashing, but I don't understand how you get to the level of. But also, typically, just a kind email will get you further. Than, oh, yeah. You know, like, I, I, well, I mean, because remember one year, I it was probably four years ago now. My uh, lease, my pass didn't show up, you know. But I feel like I, all I did was send an email and I got a new one. Yeah. It was no big deal yep. at all. I've hand delivered passes before, so yeah. I mean, like, we'll move heaven and earth to help you. I mean, and that's the thing is like uh, being back on, on on board with the chapter. You know, it, it's been kind of interesting because I'm taking two positions that I've never held. Um, I'm conservation chair, which is near and dear to me because that allows us to mobilize you know, GRTU dollars to do not just cold water conservation, but for the first time in our history, we're doing warm water conservation. Mm. Yeah. yeah, we actually donated to uh, the Guadalupe Bass uh, Restoration Initiative. We're working with Texas Parks. Um, I've got some plans up my sleeve. We'll just throw a sweet little teaser in here for the upper three miles of the river to actually do a brown trout egg project. Really? And, yeah. It's oh, gonna, yeah, nice. Yeah, it's going to be pretty cool. So I'm hoping it works. But that's going to be – that. I mean, those are some things that we're looking at. And then we're obviously we're doing a lot with Rio Grande Cutthroat. Uh, we're, we're actually working with one of the chapters in uh, Colorado right now with Greenback Cutthroat, bringing those back from the brink, doing it in our neighboring states. We've got one trout river, for gosh sakes. It's, yeah. it's not – we, we, we have a lot of money as a chapter because we're big. So, I mean, we want to support that. I mean, if we're not doing a whole lot and there's only so much we can do – Go put it somewhere where they can do a lot with it. And so yeah. that's my role is to help mobilize those funds to places that they make a difference. But then I'm also the state council chair, and that's where we relate nationally on behalf of not GRTU. It is GRTU, but also TU Texas. So like Texas version of Trout Unlimited. Even though it's just one chapter, we still need a seat at the table with the state councils. And so those roles are different, but we still are unpaid, all volunteers, all do it for free. And people really need to realize that like, there's not that many people that are doing most of the work. Trout Fest included. I mean, Trout Fest, there's, a, there's not that many volunteers. It's a huge event. There's not that many volunteers. Yeah. Not out of a 6,000-member chapter. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. But, I mean, we, I feel like as a lease, lease went this year, I think we have a few over, I think it's like 700 people or so signed up, so 300 less than last year. And there's no, you can't do it anymore. It's it's closed. It's done. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's closed. So, which... Kind of is nice because then you're not sprawled out all through the season trying to sign people up and chase stuff down. I know that's regrettable to some folks that didn't get it, but like we posted it and posted it and posted yeah. it and emailed it and emailed it and emailed it. You, like if you didn't get it, you either did not want to receive emails from us, had us going to spam, never got on Instagram to see what was going on with their chapter, or never visited the website to see when they went on sale because it actually was a pop up on the website. So I'm like, you just really don't, you're not very connected with the chapter at all. <laughs> so yeah. I'm like, there's, there, that's kind of on you. But the the thing that I ran into is, for the first time, we're getting like, 
like the opposite of hate mail, like compliments. Yeah. <laughs> so everybody's like, this is the smoothest process. This is great. Thank you so much, team. This has been fantastic. And I, I'll admit, it feels really good to know that it went off by and large without a hitch. And people are happy. I mean, because we were coming off of two years that we were told as a chapter that it was going to work from people outside of the chapter that we had contracted to do the work. And it didn't work. And so, people assume it's on you. Right. When really it's the server. It's the, whoever is the hosting site. We bought more space, more everything yeah. to actually facilitate. Because it crashed once. So it's like, you know, shame on us. But we're not going to have that happen again. We we bolstered it. And they said, this will handle everything you can throw at it. And it was worse than year before. Yeah. Because the the actual concentration of people getting on at that one time just absolutely killed it. So, I mean, this was darn near relaxing <laughs> compared yeah. to previous years. Yeah. yeah, But yeah, the chapter, I think, with Trout Fest coming up, great speakers. We're going to have a, I mean, the speaker lineup's awesome this year. Uh, we'll obviously be there with the shop and have a booth and all that sort of stuff. We love being a part of that. The casting instruction alone is worth going for. Um, I mean, that's, I mean, literally, it's a free event. You can go sit on casting classes all day. You could probably get six, six, seven hundred dollars for the casting instruction over the course of the weekend and not pay a dime yeah. for it. That's brilliant. Yeah. So, I mean, I mean, just, and like, again, meeting the speakers and shaking hands and having fun with them. That's that's the cool stuff. Mm-hmm. So being able to do that. Awesome. Chris, man, thanks for joining us. You yeah. bet. Thanks this for a having long me. time coming, but No, thank you. Appreciate, appreciate the invite. Absolutely. It's good to be down here. All hey, right. I had a reason to go go fish San Antonio. Yeah, yeah. well it sounds <laughs> worth you caught some cichlids, yeah. so sounds worth it. Well all right guys. Thanks everybody for listening. Uh we will catch y'all next week. Don't forget to order some of your favorite coffee from Wild Rivers Coffee Company. Use cold yeah, use code. Use code <laughs> Honeyhole at checkout for a discount and enjoy some coffee while you're in one hand while you're Tinkara fishing <laughs> in the other hand. I love it. Look in the description below to find links to our website, online store, YouTube channel, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Discord server, and blog. Please send your podcast questions and inquiries to info at honeyholeangling.com. Thanks for hanging out with us. We'll see you again next week.